So William Petit comes up a lot in The Madness Continues. He comes up all the time. People talk about him. And even though he hasn't lived in Chicago in probably a year and a half, I frequently get asked about him, what he's up to, what he's doing. He cast a big shadow over the comedy scene uh, while he was here. And it was because he would always show up at Mike super early. He would be he'd be everywhere. He has a big personality. I feel like I'm describing somebody who's like died recently. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he did in the sense that he moved out of the United States. He's away. Uh, he's no longer in New York, no longer in Chicago. He's living in France at the moment at the release of this podcast. But I sat down with him for a while. He's a good friend of mine, co-author of, my, of the book that we did together. Uh, the the Power Bible. You can, by the way, find the release list for that in the show notes if you want to join and get the the first possible release of that book. James Altucher said it was the best book he read all year. Uh, I we've been getting nothing but amazing reviews. Bill is a complex guy. He's an interesting guy. He's had a very fascinating life. He's led many different lives. He's done many different things, and a lot of people don't know how to take him or handle him. And I think that's why sometimes they get him wrong. But truthfully, he's one of my best friends. And he really has never said a bad thing about anyone. He loves all kinds of people. He he has a big heart. And if you can't see that about him, that's actually on you. And I'm comfortable saying that. He loves, he just loves, man. Loves people in the world, wants to embrace them. And he wants to be loved by them, honestly. And I think that everybody knows that about him. They they, they know that he wants to receive love from others, but I don't think they recognize how much he wants to give love to other people too and have them receive it. And he means it, and he means well with all of it. I feel like I have to get that out of the way because this is a long talk I had. I sat down with him before he left in his apartment, and we had a very long conversation that went all kinds of different places, and it was a good one. I'm really excited to have it on here. We had to stop right in the middle of it, I think, because I had to like get up and use the bathroom. It was a long talk. So I'm happy to bring it to you guys in this week full of podcasts. Uh, check it out, the conversation with my buddy, William Petit Third. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I just love it when you were doing I think my favorite thing is when you were doing the um you were, <laughs> you were doing the like the uh the voice you were like trying to work on your voice and you every once in a while you would be like oh, hello Brendan <laughs> <laughs> Most call, definitely call you up on the phone <laughs> Yeah, let me just Oh, I'm working on my laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that, oh, that was man. an interesting transitionary period. <laughs> I think it's funny though because it's like uh, I mean you have that product coming out soon, yeah. which will which will link in the show notes. <laughs> but uh, I gotta have to have an affiliate. Give me an thank God, thank give me God. that affiliate link, <laughs> right? <laughs> Get a discount using Brendan Lemon's link of $1. <laughs> Go to William Petit slash uh, voice course slash p- madness continues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <and> what, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting, though. Um, 
that uh, this would be such a roastable thing if any of the people that we started comedy with still did comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired for all you who quit. <laughs> some of them, I, they're not listening to this podcast anyway, but some of them, <laughs> some of them are still doing it. Some, yeah, some no, people are definitely. still doing comedy yeah, that we yeah. that started in our class. Most definitely. I think we had the most productive class. Um, we I, we definitely had a productive crew of people that have yeah. been able to to crank out a lot. Uh, Madness continues podcast sitting here with my hetero life partner William Petit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there was a I was I was when I was back in Chicago, I saw Lancey, and I was talking to Lancey for a minute, and uh, he was kind of I said he was like uh, I forget how you came up in conversation, but you came up in conversation, and as soon as I started talking, I was like, well, you know, Will's doing blah 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 blah, and then Lancey goes, who had the bet? What was the over under on how many minutes into the conversation Brandon would talk about Bill? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great! I, I I love I love that I love Lancey, man. Lancey's a great man. He's hilarious, dude. Yeah. I just, I those headshots looked really good, right? Yeah. What and a it, pretty man! One those blue eyes we were talking about. It's crazy. Like, I wanted to put a baby in him. <laughs> Make him a proposition, man. I think he's looking for purpose. Yeah. <laughs> just, just have it. Uh, William Petit the third on the Madness Continues podcast. Uh, you're moving to France in three weeks. Yeah, that's happening. I um I'm excited for you. I oh. think it's gonna be a good, me too. Be a good uh situation. Yeah. They finally. He's just. Uh, what was it that finally led up to you going over to to France? So it's a three part thing. So first was um I had started listening to a lot of lectures dealing with Baudrillard per um just our discussions about him yep. um earlier in the year and that had gone to Deleuze um Montaigne. Uh, Foucault, Foucault all, all these guys were saying things. Jacques Lacan was the one who like really nailed it home. He had written, writ, wrote something that was identical to something I was working through for my next book on the metaphysics of identity. And these thoughts in this way aren't represented in American philosophy at all. And they're not represented in German philosophy. They're just really not, they're like, they're just unique, yeah. and um, they're somewhat addressed in Eastern philosophy. But let's be real: Eastern philosophers aren't really philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> they'll say some esoteric truism, and then uh, <laughs> so um, that was one of the take things. that Brian Bruya, my philosophy of early China professor. <laughs> and that was then, such a great class too. And then um, <laughs> I actually had matched with this French girl, and I had looked up an old tweet of mine because I was going to send it to her. Like that yeah. was like. I'm a American comedian trapped, or I'm a French philosopher trapped in an American comedian's body. <laughs> so I was having like all these kind of thoughts, and then I hit you up about it. I'm like, man, I really, I really need to learn French, and maybe one day live in France because yeah. I have so many ideas similar to these guys. And the plan at that point was after the product launch to move to London. Yeah, and I was just gonna, we'll talk about your product in a second too. Yeah, and I was just going to move to London to get more stage time, and honestly, just get out of New York and be take advantage of this american accent i have yeah tired of all these british guys over here fucking american <laughs> girls and I, I lost that privilege so every time i go back and um yeah when i um when i told you that you said hey will i just want to let you know if you move back to london i feel like you'll be different in a matter of degree but you won't be different in a matter of kind and what brendan meant by that is like you know you can you can put a thousand horsepower on a toyota supra but that does not make it a bugatti <laughs> <laughs> And oh, oh my god, that was I love that reference, but it just immediately shows you what Bill's tastes are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it ain't a motherfucking Bugatti. Right. And um and 
and it wasn't going to be as challenging of an experience. And so I kind of like, you know, put it, I started thinking about it. And then I looked up cost of living. Yeah. And it was half of what it is in New York, half of what it is in London. And then um, I looked in Nice, so the south of France, and I was like, oh my God, it's even cheaper. Yeah. And I can just live on the shores and practice. And so I just like booked everything. Yeah. That day. Yeah. You kind of pulled the trigger quick. It's funny, man, because you're, you can, you, you and I have a similar. I don't know what to call it. I don't know if it's a disorder or a or a or an order, you know. But we have this thing that other I think uh, different kinds of people, di- other people who I interact with don't necessarily have, which is that you and I can kind of languish in what we were calling the 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 uh, the hoop de doo hoop de doo. <laughs> yeah, we can languish in the swamp of the hoop de doo for a while. Which for the listener, you need to understand is a moment where we're like. I don't know if I want to do it. Do I want to do it? I'm not sure if I can do it. Is this what I want to do? But then as soon as as you and I have this in common, as soon as we make the decision, I have this is what I'm going to do, it's like all the action can take place really quickly after it. But it's the getting through the hoop to do. That's the part that is the long time-taking process. So it's like you had been talking about this for a little bit, and then you decided to do it, and that day you were like bang, 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 and like got all this done. Yeah, most definitely. It was like, so for me, a lot follows in the mathematics of a decision, right? And I had even talked to you a little bit about it um, whenever we went to Con, and I kind of just looked at prices of places in Nice right afterwards. And so it had kind of been floating around, but there wasn't anything that made sense, right? Um, Comedy was more important to me, so it just didn't make sense from that perspective. Another thing was your other podcast endeavor, you um, interviewing so many European comics. Yeah, Funny Planet. Yeah. Yeah, where they are getting like paid a lot yeah. to do comedy in Fran- uh, all over Europe and they don't have the credits I have. Yeah. And, um, and that's real. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, and the listener, when this comes out, funny planet may or may not have launched already, but, um, that's real that Helgi Steiner Gunlickson and some of the other comedians we're talking to Ari on and other comedians who don't have Scandinavian <laughs> Nordic names, but like they, you can get up. And so, yeah, we were talking about that a bunch. I'm thinking about doing the same thing. <coughs> yeah, uh, I didn't want to burp into the <laughs> mic. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I was trying to be respectful to everyone's ears. But, yeah, that was, like, a huge that – was, that was another thing where it was, like, so this can make sense for me comedically. I'm location independent because of these other these other properties. And um, so – and then when the economics lined up, so when it just made economic sense, yeah. then – it was just like there's really no reason not to do something. Yeah. It just it just felt like more of an inevitability. Yeah. And I think a lot of times whenever we're at the crossroads of a decision, it is simply that we have either not unearthed enough about ourselves or the decision that we need to make in order to do that. Yeah. So what would have been a because I, the first time I was like, oh, like maybe I'll do it in March or something like that. Like it would have like what before I renewed my lease here, I briefly thought about it. And um, it would it just made no sense. Yeah. And so over time, just more context built, and then made more sense. Built by here, bills means New York. Just to, yeah. just to be clear with everybody, um, I I think that. So here's why I wanted to bring this up. Also, first of all, I'm very excited for you. Uh, I think you're gonna. I think it's gonna be really amazing. I uh, mean, it it really would not be happening if it wasn't for you. So. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think that it's. I'm vicariously, uh, I'm jealous, and I think I'm looking forward to vicarious uh, experience because you're going to be having a great time, and you're going to go. I think also part of what I'm, I'm kind of excited about. I don't think I've expressed this to you in these words. Is that I'm kind of excited to hear and see what you're going to produce and the thoughts that you're going to have while you're there. So, like something that I really value about about our friendship 
is that we'll talk on the phone like almost every day. I mean, we wrote a book together, um, which will be coming out soon. Yeah, this shit is linked in the show notes. Um, we wrote a book together and, you know, have done a lot of projects. Yeah, we did Edinburgh together and uh, have worked on a whole bunch of stuff, you know what I mean? And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing when you're in this space, your mind is going to be, and we talked about it, placed in a lot of different situations um, that uh, that you're that are not normal. You're gonna be broken out of your normal way of thinking, and I I'm really looking forward to seeing what you the thoughts you have and the things you produce being in that environment. And like for the listener who doesn't know Bill, because um, this podcast has picked up a lot of listenership lately. I mean, Bill has written uh, more than one novel. You've written screenplays. Uh, you've been published in Time Magazine and other places. You know, you you for all intents and purposes, you you actually are building up a a, a body of work. And I think that this is going to be very interesting to see kind of what comes out of this period of time while you're while you're over there. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I think that um, one of the things that's going to be interesting is I think I rely so much on English. Um, it's like a very it's like a s- samurai with a katana. Like yeah. I spend a lot of time honing my skills for English conversation. And I think without that, it's going to kind of, we talked about this before, lead to kind of a death of self a little bit because I experienced myself a lot through just speaking and connecting with people. And I don't think I'm going to be able to do that in the same way. Number one, even as I get better at French, I'm still not going to be able to convey the same type of ideas. Oh, yeah. And um, I think that that is going to be an interesting experience um, yeah, the average French speaker uses, I think, something like half as many types of words, half as uh, half as many words, not in terms of the number of words spoken, but the the difference of words spoken. That like most French speakers repeat the same words uh, more often mm. uh, than English speakers do, about by half, I think. Yeah, and also I think um, it's going to be interesting the kind of learning the French me in a sense. Um, because you know, your identity changes based on how you sound. Yeah. Changes what you can represent. And I've always been envious of Frenchmen, um, in their self-esteem. They're not as confident as American guys, but they are unflappable. Oh yeah. Um, in a way in which they really don't have anything to prove. I've dated women who've dated French guys and they're like, yeah, so do you want to have sex? I'm like, "Eh, I mean, we could, (laughs) Yeah. you know, no, thank you. I don't think (laughs) tonight. I don't think so. Yeah, because you know you eat the onion for dinner. <laughs> I just don't think I have a very. <laughs> yeah, and I just want to. I want to get in that place of just like <laughs> not proving myself. I want to get that French African dude confidence. Oh, dude, there are the most confident dudes on the planet are yeah. French African dudes. Yeah, I mean it's because they. Sequasa, qu'est-ce que c'est, mec? I can't even do a good impression. They're yeah. boy. It's like if you. So like the casual listener will be like French. That's a fucking gay ass language or whatever you're gonna, whatever you, whatever bullshit ignorant thought you have. But uh, it's not. It doesn't sound lame when it's being spoken by a deep fucking voiced Fr- Cameroonian man who's the bouncer of a bar. Monsieur, votre idée, s'il vous plaît. Like, yeah, it, it's the re- carte d'identité. I mean, I was just uh, sharing with you like some of the French rap that I've been listening to lately, and it's I'm like, "Scary, dude, dude." I'm like, "This shit goes so hard." Like, I was it's like, "It's all Lil Wayne." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, I was like, "We have gangster rap. They got child soldier rap." Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, you don't know what it's like in the Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, but um, and so that is another thing that I'm really kind of 
overall pretty excited about and i also think i am a big advocate of moving a lot in your 20s yeah um and the main reason is is every time you move you kind of get to let go of parts of your identity that aren't serving you like the person i am in new york is just so radically different than the person i was in chicago yeah who was radically different from the person i was in malaysia and london yeah and then in college and so i think that there's a lot of times that we allow the context that we're in to to speak for us and we don't even we're not even aware of it and um when Mm. we were in france um last october i mean i was so unwilling to adapt i mean i was just this spent the entire time almost bitching (laughs) that this place was just not new york yeah i I was actually the bill burr bit where it's like (laughs) like new yorkers in la are the worst it's like what where can i get a good dollar size of pizza at 3 30 in the fucking morning like (laughs) it does i almost verbatim what you said yeah we're walking around all right so the listener needs to understand we went to mipcom last year uh mipcom was the largest film uh i mean film pardon me television market on the planet and bill and i were both working on tv series uh one that i had created funny planet which you guys have heard about and bill worked on brown guys who fuck which is a great idea and uh and still could be made one day maybe yeah i think it's i think it's great um but basically in in just in a short description and correct me if i'm missing anything here but the short description of the series is basically the stereotype of brown dudes in America and in Western culture is that they're basically asexual dudes. They're essentially, they're beta males. And Bill was like, I just want to write a series in which these guys like get laid. Like Bill is basing this on his own experience and experience of um, Usama Siddiqui. Siddiqui. Siddiqui, pardon me. And um, uh, I probably made that mistake so I probably made that mistake to him. Yeah, that's <laughs> what's up, Usama Siddiqui? Yeah. <laughs> He probably just glossed over it. Like, I I kept calling Tom Takar Tom Thacker. I That's was like, hey. such a power move. <laughs> just a ridiculous. Just Tom Thacker. Oh, I was just over there. T- I was just talking with Tom Thacker over here, and yeah. then I pointed at Tom, and he was like, "What the fuck are you talking?" About? Me and um, me and my friend Kevin <laughs> used to call our history or not um, PE professor. Um, his name was Garson, but we used to call him Garcon. <laughs> that Gar- means boy in French, yeah. by the way. We're like Garcon, Garcon. <laughs> Garcon. Yeah. Excuse-moi, garçon. So, okay, so anyway, where I was going with this is that uh, he wanted to make this series where it was basically two guys who were, two two brown guys who were sexual subjects in the world. But not just that. Like, there was, they had a whole funny script, and we, uh, you, I say we, you wrote. Um, but you had influence on I mean, the reason. Some input, yeah. yeah, with a number of episodes. And they were all good. And uh, so we were both working on these shows, and we went over to a MIPCOM, and uh, here's the thing that the, the, the non-French listener needs to understand about France. Uh, French people, and this is, this is true of the whole country, kind of casually don't give a shit about anything. They don't give a shit about you. They don't give a shit about you, what you want. They kind of just casually don't. They're like um, uh, Mark Manson's, like the, the living embodiment of one of Mark Manson's like books. And uh, we went out, Bill and I decided to go out to dinner one night in old the old city in Cannes, uh, or Cannes, or however you pronounce it. And when we were walking down the street at 8 p.m., yep. it wasn't even that late. No, it wasn't late at all. <laughs> and it was a weekend. It was like <laughs> Sunday night. It wasn't even that bad. It was like 8 p.m. on a week. I don't even think it was Sunday. I think it was like a yeah. Saturday or something. And we're walking around in every fucking restaurant we went to was closing as we were walking up to it and they were all like sorry dinner we're done you can't help you with it and like that and we the whole evening we walked up and down and i think 
you I think I've never seen you maybe one time I've ever seen you get more angry. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just like I felt like they were so I, I get mad when I feel like people are allergic to money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it 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 was, it was a trying experience and there were times where Karen and I were out and we we're just trying to get food at like 12:30 yeah. yeah. and it was we just couldn't find yeah, anything. Yeah, you couldn't do it. And um and it that was, was I even remember you saying to people like don't I want to give you money. Yeah. <laughs> don't you understand that I want to give you money? And they were and they were like we are, we're sorry just we are closing. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I could not wait to get back to New York because, like, my bodega has never closed. I mean, I think there's been, like, nine <laughs> feet of snow, and I have still, still got chicken, over and yeah, chicken and rice. You, um, got a, you got a great bodega on the Lower East oh Side. Oh, my God. The they're, they're the best. And they got rid of all the really creepy guys. Like, there's a bodega, bodega creepiness, but there was, like, one guy who's super creepy. Dude, there's a handful of bodegas in this in this city. That I mean, like, more than a handful, but there's a bunch of bodegas that you walk in and you're like, I think somebody's been murdered here in the last 24 hours. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, um, ASAP Rocky shot a video at my bodega where they pretend to rob it. Shut the fuck up. The one around here? Yeah, yeah, the one Just we around? go to. I'll show you the music video afterwards. Oh my god. Yeah, I'll have to link that in the show notes. Uh, we're in LES, by the way. I should say to everybody, Lori. So I, Lori I just told girls who are visiting me Soho. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're technically south of yeah. Houston. Yeah, it's I real. mean, it is super south of Houston. It's like like the one block. Oh my god, my very my biggest clod hopper moment in New York, and believe me, there's been a lot. But my biggest clod hopper moment was me talking with somebody, and I'm like, "Yeah, uh, I think my buddy's uh, down by Houston Street." Uh. People were like, "What the fuck?" the fuck are you talking about you moron and then like somebody was like honey it's houston oh man she was waiting her entire life to say that, that oh yeah that. and she was a she was a drag queen with a huge penis oh that. so it was a very new york moment it was a very new york moment a gorgeous drag queen by the way she yeah. was wonderful and so was her penis uh so okay here all right so let me back way the fuck up uh, for the listener and go back to this which is you were talking about you're a big fan of um you believe in traveling around in your 20s which i also believe in and agree with but what prompted one i've been trying to record a podcast we've been trying to re- so we record shit all the time yeah 100 but we don't um actually sit down and do podcasts very much and uh one time the only other time is the one that we did uh the lazy philosopher which is your podcast which will also link in the show notes yeah trump after trump <laughs> white men built this country well it's funny because brexit just happened now brexit is really going to happen and so and now <laughs> oh, it's boy. fitting we we record a podcast a follow-up to trump this is- <laughs> oh my god yeah oh man yeah that's not my best moment <laughs> if you took any individual clip of me on your that episode of your show my th- my uncle still is very suspicious of you <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I love that you played this for family and they're like, Bill, your friend is a racist. <laughs> oh, no, they're just fans. And they were just like, yeah, like, I, re- you really, I'm like, no, 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 he's on the, he, you really think he's on the right side of things? Like- <laughs> I got pretty fired up in that episode. <laughs> I was yeah. a scared, scary, I was a scary time. What was interesting, though, was your diagnosis. I mean, that it's Andrew Yang's campaign is that nobody spoke to half of the goddamn country. Yeah, and, and it's it's amazing to watch the guy riding that wave. Yeah, so like I think you know there there was a lot of energy that you had there um, that might 
have been like you know but it's just like there's a bunch of people just not being represented in the cultural message of the country there you go and um and we expected them to vote against their own interests when they weren't even spoken to oh, yeah and they were treated as an afterthought yeah and um i think one of the things though that i i think honestly we get andrew yang as a president hillary losing is okay yeah i th- i th- i think i would trade that also and yang's a great man yeah um all right, for all you listeners that are furiously typing on your keyboards comments, uh, let's back up before you guys go off the deep end and just continue uh, continue with this chat here. So what, what actually was the impetus specifically for this podcast, though, was that I wanted to talk to you about the different movements you've had in your life because, you know, you're, Bill is one of the most eclectic people I know, and you've lived in a lot of different places. I mean, like even when, and it, and it, it makes sense that identity is so, it's such a fascination for you because you're like born in, uh, you know, born in the UK, raised in Hong Kong, uh, you know, t- what is that? It's like a joke from your act. Where uh, you're like, well, I was born in London, raised in Hong Kong and hit puberty in Texas. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, but, and then you have all this family in Malaysia and uh you know your dad's family is in st louis and you've been kind of all over new york chicago texas like and it's funny because when we were talking i remember thinking and this i brought this up to you is i was like i don't think i could actually trade like if somebody asked me to do the general like hey what what's bill's life like or what was his, him growing up like i could give like a normal sketch of it but i don't i don't think a lot of those i don't have a lot of those movements down so what i what i wanted to talk about on the podcast a little bit was like you know, your, your kind of movement through your twenties, you know, you went to school at Baylor. That was where you yeah. went to undergrad, but you, when did you move? And maybe the good way to do this is to talk about when did you, when did you originally move to Hong Kong? And then when did you move from Hong Kong to Texas? Okay. So I moved to, um, from Hong Kong to Texas or from London to Hong Kong in 1995. Got it. And, um, you were, you were a kid, a kid. So I was, I was five years old. I had a little British accent. I was like a little cutie. And uh, my parents actually looked up whether or not I could, there was any way to keep my British accent because I had like a refined British accent. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, and I spoke very proper and everything like that. Um, and just all the speech pathologists they talked to is like, there's no way he's going to lose it, even if I went to the British school. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. And so I ended up going to the American school. Because you're so young. Yeah, I'm so young. They're like, they're, they're, you're not going to be able to sustain this. When do, when do accents set? About 11, 12, 13. Ah, uh, yeah. got it. But even then, like, there's a lot of erosion that happens. So Over time. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, I was like a... I was like a like a weak-willed kid, so I probably would have just molded to whatever <laughs> whatever place I was at, no matter what, like no matter how <laughs> how deeply it, uh, encrusted it was. Yo, we gonna talk like this? Yeah. Oh, I tried. <laughs> um, and then I moved to Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong for six years. Um, I watched the handover. I watched all that stuff happen. And um, Hong Kong was really cool because um, you know, I went to HKIS, which is one of the best schools in the world we had like a rock climbing wall multiple swimming pools golf course wow and um it was it's was, it was really interesting because in hong kong um it's such a rich place so it's a very poor and rich place like we talk about wealth disparity in america it's it's really n- n- not the same compared to wealth disparity in hong kong because you see because it's so compact yeah so like where you know you have wealth disparity in ohio but like the the haves and the haves nots are really kind of they're separate. not yeah they're yeah. not in the same they're not even close to the same location yeah but um the, the haves way, are in Columbus 
And yeah, Cincinnati and the have-nots are way and way somewhere else. Somewhere else, right? But like in Hong Kong, you're kind of tied together in this this social net, and everybody, no matter how wealthy they are. So this was the weird thing. So I conflated my dad's company's money because we were expats, so we didn't own our apartment, and we had a nice apartment, but it was basically owned by the company. So I thought we were like richer than my Chinese friends who were there, who were there like who own their like buildings and shit. But like, <laughs> I, I, I was just like, yeah, but we have a nicer apartment. <laughs> uh, and I just didn't understand that. that it was interesting. Cause we had like a, like a live in maid and that's just part of the culture over there and all of that stuff. And you're, you're with like kids who, um, everyone's moving every two years. And so you're in a school where people are constantly moving and their identity is kind of third culture kids. Yeah. And um, that's interesting. You know, it's one of the things that uh, me and Robin Altucher, we really bond on is because her kids kind of had to go through the same experience where they had to live all these different places. Yeah. yeah. We have talking about this. Yeah. And so you kind of get in this space where the amount of people you can relate to are only people, not just that move, but move in a very particular way and have certain types of benefits. Got it. Yeah. And then, so when we moved, so you're used to having a shifting landscape of a social circle a hundred percent and so I, I was I had to make new friends all the time and especially during the handover because a lot of american business pulled out of hong kong in fear um that china was going to basically nationalize a lot of american companies and so that no one really knew how that was going to go yeah and um but when i moved to texas so we were originally supposed to move to la um oh boy i, I shudder to think what that would have been oh like dude for you. I, I told clay that and he's like man if you moved to la you'd have been a real piece of shit <laughs> <laughs> um just professor hurlbut just talking like it is yeah but um we we moved to texas and uh when we moved to texas i my i gotta tell my little brother to watch his mouth yeah <laughs> so um we had m lived in the suburbs and my parents wanted me to go to public school which i honestly upon all of our reflection was probably not the best thing for me Mm. Um, and this is going to sound like just like so like lame, but it was just like a lot of people just couldn't relate to me in this class. And because um, I wasn't black, I wasn't fucking Indian. I, and the teachers were like a little bit racist. Yeah, like you. OK, so that's I feel like you have a unique. This is what so you this is what I feel like. I wish I could relate to this experience a little bit. Uh, and it's one of the few things that I feel like gives you, this is why I think you have such a unique perspective, is that you, you're, you're biracial, you're dark-skinned, you lived in Texas, you grew up in Hong Kong, you had this shifting situation. It's all, it almost feels like there's, you occupy a space that doesn't have a, a, like a word or a name, or like mm -hmm. people can't easily, and we've talked about this before, like people can't go this label and then put it on you yeah. in their head. And I feel like that, I I and I I've had this a little bit, so I, I guess I was wrong when I said I can't relate to it. I've had this a little bit, but obviously I'm I'm a fucking white devil. So, um, I Bill just took a drink of water and he, I just wanted to try to get him to spit it out <laughs> so bad, but <laughs> but like I'm very white and obvious. I'm a white blue eyed dude. I don't have no one interacts with me automatically like mm. that. But if you grow out hair, you're Indian AF. Yeah. And if you have a and if you shave your head, you bick your head, you're black, like straight out. And so it's fascinating for me because you have had to operate in that space where people don't can't easily put handles on you. And as a consequence, because I think that we've talked about this before, identity is um is uh, reflexive in two directions, meaning mm -hmm. that people treat you a certain way. Because you are, they, you, you to them are a certain, you're this person, 
So we're going to put this label on you in my head and I'm going to treat you like this. And now you behave uh, that way partially because they've already put the identity on you. So you, I feel like, I feel like Bill, and I'm sorry if the listeners like, where the fuck is Brennan going with this talking thing? But I feel like this is very interesting because it's like you move to Texas and you occupy this position where it's like, you can't be given a role by people around you mm-hmm. because they don't know what to give you. So as a result, you have to self-determine your own role in a space in which no role exists. Does that is that how that was? A hundred, a hundred percent. And it basically, what ended up happening is number one, I think that was a very apt um, kind of uh, basically representation of what happens. And identity does go two ways. And the problem is, is that your aesthetic has to match. So a lot, a lot of times it doesn't. Ma- so I'm a British citizen. Yeah. But if I were to just claim that I was British, I get a lot of flack. And because you don't sound British, I don't sound British and you don't look British. I don't look British. I don't, so like there. So there is a lot of, oh, like, but that can't be you. Right. So that can't that that, that I can't my my aesthetic doesn't match a lot of times my past. Mm. And so and it's it's harder to do as you get older, because you, as you become more and more dynamic, it's harder to represent all those parts of yourself very rapidly. And a lot of times and this is an issue I had in the Midwest, particularly was um in the midwest you double down on how you're similar to people yeah and you basically the first thing you want to do is establish we're of kind and then maybe later on you can basically say you can acknowledge how you guys are different yeah but um yeah so i but i didn't know that when i moved to the midwest i thought it was like london or new york where it's like you double down on how you're different in conversation but that mm. just the per- people when you're a different race of somebody i think in the modern sense um people just assume lack of cultural context and huh okay and so whenever you're doubling down on how you're different they're only saying oh yeah you're You're not in my tribe though okay got it and i I don't think i used to think it was like limited to just race um somebody once told me that they they don't even see i've had a lot of people say that they don't experience me as a a not a non-white person like they know in intellectually i'm I'm black and Indian or I'm not white, but how they experience me is of white due to education or how I talk or cultural references. Mm. And, um, you do talk about the band 311 and Hootley and Blowfish a lot. You yeah, talk about those two bands well, a lot. Well, and I think it has a lot to do with actually. <laughs> what a stupid joke. All right. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. That, that, that I, I was like, I, I'm not white enough for, for that. <laughs> but, um, I, I, it basically in, in um texas i i tried to identify just solely as black because um i realized that indian just wasn't cool they can't they're also i i uh, look I'm, I'm not have never spent a lot of time in texas but my <clears throat> my intuition would tell me that they pr- they probably are not nuanced enough to have a appreciation for any of that well wh- what ends up happening is this is that you I, I i was also a weirdo i was a fucking weird kid yeah. so like i would eat glue like you would eat glue eat glue cry during orchestra test like because i like elmer's make, glue yeah yeah make glue cakes um what why would you do that i i i was just always a weird like so like it, it wasn't just I don't want to make it sound like, oh, my classmates were bigoted or anything like that. It was just like I was also weird. So I wasn't helping my. Yeah, you weren't helping yourself. I wasn't helping myself. And but it's also but but hold on. But but it's also you're occupying a space in which there is no ability to interact with you to begin with. Yeah. And then you're it's almost like I don't know. I wondered this, too, because I I felt like I kind of occupied a position like this when I was, uh, you know, in school and I was younger where it was like people didn't know quite how to handle you. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of just 
did shit and you would just do whatever and it would weird people out sometimes but you were just like i i at least i'm getting a reaction from oh, someone 1 million percent is, is I, I was always kind of like an exhibitionist in a weird way yeah and um you know and i had like cul-de-sac friends and things like that that we we used to play basketball with um and so i one of the things i really did about like about moving to america was that i did have the quint quintessential american experience i had a dog um i i played basketball in the cul-de-sac um i played roller hockey all these other things that i i learned how to ride a bike which was very difficult to do in a city like Hong Kong. Oh yeah, there's probably no space. No space. And so I, I got to do a lot of things I wouldn't have been able to do other places, but like one of the problems with me being in public school was just that um I'm kind of like retarded. <laughs> <laughs> and um and so because you're dyslexic. Dyslexic, but also just also just like in the ways I was talking about I eat glue, I'm just like a weird person to have and I kind of needed more attention. Hmm. to basically and i needed I, I think i just needed more people to understand me and I, that just was not present and then eventually i went to private school and then i started doing drugs yeah yeah and um that but what what year was this uh, so i went to pri- i started going to private school in 2004 mm. so when high school started and um i started doing drugs i think 20 2009 got and, it or not 2009 sorry 2000 six 2006 got it so two years before i started graduating okay and um and it it basically that was like the first identity that i had that was easily recognizable it was like drug guy drug guy and it was something that was just it was something i liked i liked the aesthetic of it i liked being the guy who got more fucked up than anybody it was easily understood and it transcends race right like if you're like that rich kid getting fucked up yeah because you're until this point so this is something that i feel like because it's like we talk a lot of the things that we talk sometimes we talk about racial issues a lot and stuff and i think it's fascinating because like part of the reason just to back up that i think one of the conversations we continue to come back to is that my experience of race i think as a white person in america is different than i think a lot of other white people's experience of race because i feel like i grew up in a very diverse community um in metro detroit i had friends of every like like my you know one of my best friends when i was a kid was kevin chen uh and you know then i well, my the, my best friend was sanjeev boxy when i was six years old who lived across the streets from um pakistan and um you know and i, I mean like i just i had friends from, uh, from, from of every religion and every you know my first copy of the quran was given to me by my, my friend mustafa gulam like and you know we I, I just didn't relate to the same th- ex- cultural experience that a lot of like white people have. And I think it's interesting because I, I, I think that you moving then to Texas are starting to get this like very strange racial narrative thrust upon you where it's like, this is the identity that you have because this is the identity we can hold on to when talking with you. And that's, that's given to you socially. So it's weird because it's like, you're just talking about that being the drug dude who transcends race. It's like suddenly you're unburdened of this idea that you have to be essentialized to this person in the eyes of others. <clears throat> one million percent and um i think one of the things that it did also was because no one would really buy into the fact that i was black that so like my whole thing oh, wait, so why not just out of curiosity because my hair wasn't short enough got it and so um yeah and i just when i was younger i just had a lot my indian features were more pronounced than my black features got it and um so no one was buying into that and i was just kind of like a gamer nerd and stuff like that and so yeah. like when kicking I, ass on wow yeah i was i rated endgame on world of warcraft rated endgame star wars galaxies and um and i really identified with doing well in school 
And but like drugs superseded all of that and kind of just gave me a clear cut way to experience myself and kind of bring value to a situation in a way in which I honestly feel like I was destined to always do. I always felt I I just knew I was always going to do drugs, even when I was huh. a fucking nerd, super nerd. I just knew that there was something that really attracted me to to them. And I just wanted I just I just loved it. And I, I, I love I loved being bad in that way. So um, I overdosed <laughs> um, um, in the transitional uh, year between junior and senior year. I uh, overdosed at Six Flags, just a whole ordeal. I was 107 pounds. Um, and you were 107 pounds? 107 pounds. What do you weigh now? Uh, probably like 165. Wow. So I, I was like a lot. I was, I was, I was just rail thin. Just, and um, my whole senior year was a goddamn mess um, because I was just just dealing with the fallout of all these emotions and getting drug tested all the time and school wanting to like kick me out because they had heard rumors and some some of the rumors I just had started about myself that weren't even real, but I was like really pathological liar. Yeah. And um, why? why, Okay. So why, what what was the impetus behind that? Do you think um, being a pathological liar? Yeah. Or starting rumors about yourself? Um, Well, so the one that I, I wanted to be, I, so I really loved rap and I actually had this very, harsh criticism of rap for a very long time because I felt like rap brainwashed me in a sense Mm. to want a life that I, number one, it was just not my cultural experience and I, but I wanted that to be. So I was trying to buy AK 47. Like I was, I was in Texas. That doesn't sound too weird, but I was, yeah, just like, but like just illegally and just to have it in my car. Just, I, I wanted, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be a kingpin kind of like energy. Yeah. And um and so this was over time when um yeah, it was just all coming to a head senior year and that's why I didn't go to college outside of state. I didn't go to UCLA or Boston College because I was just fucking up my life so readily all the time. And so I went to Baylor, which is where my sister went. And my younger sister went there after um, I went there too. So, so you didn't go out of state. Was it because uh, I just had too many? My dad um, basically was like, "You do not know how to say no to a good time." Uh. And he said, "A big city will will eat you alive." And he was a million percent right. Um, and that's because Waco almost ate me alive. Um, and Got it. I started just uh, when I was at Baylor. Just you know, went hard into like drugs again and all this other stuff. And um, really, it was just like two years of that, just that being my whole, the whole, you know, going to class messed up, all these other things. You would go to class messed up. Oh, yeah. I just can't. That's amazing, man. And and because it was normalized in my group of friends. Got it. You know, so like I was, I was, I was just, I was a complete degenerate. Yeah. So you really, this is what you built your identity around. A hundred percent. And when I quit, um... I had to deal with this reckoning that I wasn't good at anything. Okay. And that was horrifying. Like, like to, because here's the thing is, is like drugs had insulated me from most people don't realize this. People think their identity or they, how we talk about identity in the modern sense is things that you had nothing to do with. So Uh things you were born into your race, immutable characteristics, immutable characteristics or preferences. Sure. What I think more so has to do with your identity is skills. Uh I think skills are where we derive value to society a lot of times. And so when we're going through existential crises and we're like, Oh my God, I'm a fraud. It's you usually, you're just not good enough at whatever you want to be doing. Yeah. And, um, well, there's something to that because, uh, Jamie Foxx even talks about this where he says that, 
music became this gateway to connect with other people because he was like, I wasn't black. I was a talented musician. Exactly. And, and there's something about that where it's like it, it, it begins to transcend these immutable that uh, uh, absent. And this and this, I think, is almost it's not unique to America, but it feels like it's it. I don't feel pressure living outside of the United States that I do with this inside the United States, which is that outside of anything else, that's how people will treat you here. Mm-hmm. And and that and I and that's very weird. I think. Yeah. Um. A race identity trumps national identity. And yeah. uh, we talked about this. That one of the things I'm looking forward to is that race is not even in part of the French Constitution. It's banned from it because they they believe you're French first. Yeah. And everyone identifies as being French. And I really, you know, I've talked to you about this. That I grew up my entire life thinking I had been oppressed. Meanwhile, realizing that, no, the thought of me be thinking I was oppressed was oppressive mm. and it kept me from taking responsibility for my own actions. Mm. And, and, you know, like there, to an extent, do I feel like, is there sometimes more prejudice or more friction in certain situations? Yeah. But that also, I can't, like, I used to think Chicago was just like this, like racist, disgusting town. Um, that's completely irredeemable and in the way in which it made me feel, but these were the kind of the experience I've moved from. I moved from London to Chicago and when I was at number one, London is a very a big melting pot, but also I was an American over there. So I had an American accent. I was, I was going to a really cool school. I was taking courses at the London school of economics. So I was like in this cool place in my life yeah. and I was having a lot of success with women, but a lot of that, I honestly, I didn't want to be honest with myself. A lot of it was probably just because I had an American accent and I was in this cool stage of my life. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I was in Chicago, I was kind of in law school. I wasn't in the best law school in the city, not the worst, but not the best. Um, and um, when I, and when I was there, I was just normal and I just didn't have good fashion. I, I lacked social acuity and but it was just also the midwest is just a different culture it's a different culture but i didn't take responsibility for it because i just wrote it off as racism right and like come to find out that a lot of um, transplants even if they're white experience the same thing of what i was experiencing in chicago of people being cold and having a difficult time of breaking into friend groups and which um, is funny because the midwest is so known for being friendly yeah but but it's like it it is like cold and weird kind of well there were there people in the midwest hang out with their families mostly well it's this is the thing is that a lot of the things that i am don't have currency in a lot like so like i would have this issue where i'd be dating a girl and like I've, i've had a lot of girls say i don't know how to describe you to people and i don't like they're like he's a lawyer ish like you know he He's a comedian ish. He's just everything is just a. It's a. I'm. I'm. They want to have like one statement. One statement. You want to. Oh yeah, he's a lawyer and he went to Iowa. Yeah, and and then and so when you kind of he's in finance. He went to Indiana. Yeah, and so when you when and so like that was kind of like a an interesting experience. But when I was in in college, and I realized I wasn't good at anything. I um. That was that was just like kind of like the first like. I need to get my life together moment. And I started doing like a lot of community service. A lot of it was also trying to get laid. Like, you know, which is, I think, I think what's the interesting thing about being a guy is if you figure it out really young, you fuck up your life. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) like every guy I know who was getting like mad ass, like when he was in his like like, like 17 to 20. Yeah. He's just, they're just shitty. They peaked. Yeah. They're, and like the thing is, is because a lot of it was context based. A lot of it, they don't know why it happened. And so it's like, you know, they just, it just was, and they over identified with that moment. 
and or they become alcoholics because they're like, well, when I got drunk around, it, it used it, to work. Yeah, and um, or they're getting me tooed now. Yeah, and <laughs> that, just from, that from too. Fucking, yeah, like you know. <laughs> And so, like, for me, it was just kind of like this cultural odyssey of, like, having to let go of drugs to get what I really wanted, which was to go to law school, which was to develop skills, which was to connect with women. And um, all those things kind of did happen. And but like by the time I graduated um, I from like, Baylor, from Baylor, I had, um, you know, I was like a philosophy club leader. I was like like in newspapers for like. So when did service. you stop doing drugs? Um, so there was like a soft stop and a hard stop. Sure. And so it was like 20. I want to say 2011. Okay, and that was the soft stop. Yeah, or was that the hard stop? The soft stop, and then I I, w- I went back, like six months later. But then I then I stopped hard, and I I would only do psychedelics. Got it. And when did you move from Texas to London? Uh, so I moved from Texas to Malaysia, and I lived in got Malaysia it. for okay. a year. Okay, um, to help in twenty eleven. Yeah, twenty twelve. Okay, got it. And to help my dying grandmother, and um, to start a business with my friend Jay, and live rent free. And kind of just Juvie and Jay Hernandez. Ju- Juvie and Jay, yeah. <laughs> um, we we started an application called My Opinion. Um, uh, the company is called Story Tapestry, and what that was a really that whole process gave me a lot of purpose, and it was the first time I actually had really you know it was an utter failure from the beginning. Like it was going to fail. We yeah. poured in all our graduation money, but one of the things that I think was really powerful in that was that we took ourselves seriously. Yeah. And it was the first time I had taken myself seriously and really tried to do something. A- exactly. And through that process, you know, I just didn't have the skills to come through with a lot of it, but it really um it really just I I gave me it made me respect myself to be honest. And being in Malaysia allowed me separation from a lot of my friends' anxieties on just getting a job right away. And really connecting with my family during that time. And honestly, you know, when you're separated from being validated through conversations, you kind of look back and like, oh, I was like, I'm responsible for the situation I was in because I got rejected by every law school I'd applied to. Whoa. Um, which was 100%. I mean, I was a drug addict for two years. Like, you know, yeah. I had a 0.4 GPA my first year of college. Jesus, like, Bill. Like, I was like, you know, and or first semester. It's so crazy. To, it's just crazy for me to think about that because I think that – the guy I know you as now is like you're you completed this masterclass course, which took you a fucking year. Yeah. And while you were doing it, we wrote a goddamn book. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you were so driven when I met you in Chicago and, and just have been since. But like when we met in Chicago, you were doing the most open mics of anybody in a week. I think you did like 30 or something. Yeah. Some insane number of open, open mics. And then I started doing the nonstop comedy every day. I was like, I'm going to do 100 days. And then you were like, fuck it, I'm going to do it a whole year. And then you just did it a whole year. Yeah. Then and you now, gave a TED Talk on it. Well, it's crazy. Now, Clay has the record of 800-something days straight. Yeah, he's doing it on the L. Yeah. Like, it's just madness. But, like, I, the point of me bringing that up is, like, I can't even conceive of, like, you not being driven in a way. Yeah, all that happened in Malaysia. So that the, that big tonal shift happened. Um, I used to document how I used every hour of the day. I had Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. And um, that doesn't sound unhealthy. No, it 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 it, <laughs> it, it was it became super because I became really neurotic. So at, at the at last five minutes of every hour I would document how long I time I took to poop, like how I actually <laughs> spent all the time and I would grade it green, yellow, red. Then at the oh end of the God, week, Bill. I would analyze like the trends, and because I was trying to overcorrect, like you know the, the Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, you were like, I fucked up for this much. Now I'm gonna yeah, come back yeah. and have to. But these are things that. But it's funny because these are things that regular people know know intuitively because they haven't had to. They didn't. They didn't go so far into vice that they have to now 
like you said, overcorrect into virtue. Yeah. 100%. So these, so you're like you're you're on a search at this point in time to be like, what am I really like? How am I really? You're trying to just understand your life by gathering data and then trying to trying to move it in a good direction. Exactly. Just trying to do anything that sounded like a good idea. And I was really inspired by one of my professors, Dr. Markham, who was a Harvard professor, like doctor, triple PhD, and he used to wake up at three thirty in the morning. So I moved back how early I woke up every week until I got to 3 30 in the morning so when i was living in london i was waking up at 3 30 morning morning going for an hour-long run then um doing um working on my books and then going to the gym because gyms don't open there till 6 a.m and then after that working on class studies doing all this other stuff i was part of all these different communities and i really didn't party that i didn't actually and i really didn't actually like live when i was in london because i was so focused on basically becoming an exemplar of discipline and i got down to five percent body fat cook all my meals at the beginning of the week and it really kind of just really sharpened my character and the reason i got to study out there was just because my mom had found a course study thing that i could just get like that that didn't have any admissions requirements but i was taking courses at the london school of economics (laughs) and so i was just it was it was basically and i was at a point where i was like do i want to go to law school or do i want to study finance and and just get a master's a master's in finance be a banker and that but i just number one you, i can't you would be so bored yeah I, I i i don't have the same kind of literacy financial literacy i could do it and i think that there, the courses i took changed fundamentally how i look at the world mm. and i i really appreciate those courses but yeah i was just like oh you know, when I got into Syracuse and then Kent, I was just like, oh, I am definitely want to become an attorney. Uh, fuck all this other, fuck this noise, you know? And, um, and yeah, and so and then Jay and I went backpacking through Europe, which completely kind of changed me. So was Jay with you in Malaysia? No, 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 no. So he wasn't. We did all this through Skype um, and stuff like that. I just was in Malaysia because it was a place I could live rent-free. It was just somewhere to be close. I was, I was never going to get another point in my life to be able to be close to that part of my family for that period of time. Got it. And um, it was like a really important time because like my grandmother was dying of Alzheimer's. And so like I w- had to carry her and like, like help put like um, a- adhesive on her wounds and stuff with my, my aunts who everybody was just working around the clock in her, her last moments alive and stuff. And really um, it just really, you have to take time to forge bonds with people. My parents made the very calculated decisions that they realized very early on that I could live my life and not actually be close to any of my family because I was, we, we were expats. Yeah. And so I would stay with family like for like really long periods of time to forge these bonds when I'm young. That mm. way um, I would always have them. And that has just deeply played out. I'm very close to all my family. But when I was in Malaysia, that was kind of the thing was just like, oh, like, you know, it was just a place to start over and not just be thrust in the thicket of because my whole this is the thing this is how narrow minded my self concept was. I was just like, oh, I just want to get a job in Houston. I want to live in Texas. Like, I can't. I couldn't even imagine. conceive of a world outside of that. Yeah, because mm. you know you get so caught in that think tank of things and like I because I, I, that that's where the that's where the like I I think I've said zeitgeist more than once on this podcast now, but that's where like the 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 cultural momentum in that area goes to. Yeah, you think about like you can see this in the Midwest. You can see this in Chicago. You can see it in New York. Like yeah, 100%. it's you get involved in a community of people, and they they they're like, yeah, you need to we need to do these things, and they're they're, they're you're you're following the kind of 
um, flow of the unconscious river of life. A hundred percent. And like in the uh, the book that I'm working on about the metaphysics of identity, the holocron, I talk about the cultural trance that you get sucked into, the cultural story that you're borrowing thoughts from your community, not yourself. And you, it's important to l- be able to label that in the anatomy of your decision making progress, like process, like oh. This this is the culture, my a cultural yearning, yeah. right? This isn't me, but sometimes those voices scream so loudly we conflate them with ourselves, and um. So when I was in Malaysia, it allowed me to kind of detach from that, and uh, um. But yeah, when I moved to Chicago from London, which was, which I would say was difficult because number one, I went to Chicago, Kent, grade school was like ranked like sixty. Whenever I went there, I got, had a scholarship because I'd done well in the um LSAT. But um, I wanted to. I wanted to be. A, I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be a legal professor. Got it. And by not because I love the law, but because I wanted. I've always wanted to be known as somebody who is intelligent. Like yeah. That, that was my main. This was problem. what you were seeking to actually satisfy. Exactly. I wanted to be somebody who, without without explanation, had people assume that they were they were competent. And there was no greater way to do that than to get like a Harvard JD or Yale JD. So my, uh, do you have to go bathroom? One second. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. I had to <laughs> grab a beer. <laughs> 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 I had finished my other beer and we're like 45 minutes in and I was like, yeah, I just, uh, hold on, Bill. I need to go get another one. You were on a roll too. So I didn't want to like, I felt bad because I didn't want to stop you, but I had wanted one for a minute. <clears throat> Cause I don't know if you guys have ever talked to Bill, but you need a drink. <laughs> Bill is, by the way, drinking out of a. What, is that a gallon? Yeah, it's a gallon of water jug. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it you, sits and, in the center of and your. You, and you know me, I I haven't washed the lid like ever. <laughs> <laughs> that that I'm, I'm I've I've actually thought about it like that might be what kills me one day. Like, <laughs> oh, how to build I? Oh, you know that jug of water? You know that giant jug of water, man? Yeah, dude, it grew a fungus on it that science has never seen before. You know what's ironic is after killing Bill, it's actually being used to cure cancer. <laughs> They're calling it the Petite Fungus. Petitophilus. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so here's the other thing I got to tell All right, we're going to get back into talking about how you went to law school in order to try to feel like a smart guy. But <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but I want to say this real quick. It's Bill's, Bill's apartment, which you're soon going to be leaving. I've stayed at yeah. many times as well as many other Chicago comics who have come through here. Like Luke and Skyler and St. James and Nick and Josh and who else has stayed here? Anybody? Am I missing anybody else? A lot of people. <laughs> yeah, a whole lot of people yeah. have stayed here. A uh, bunch of Harvard grad girls. <laughs> anyway, um, Bill's apartment. I was walking up and I kind of had this like nostalgic moment where I was like, man, for the past few years, Bill's lived here and like I'm just gonna. I've been here so many times and he's gonna be moving to France. I'm probably not gonna be coming back to this apartment. But one of the funny things about this apartment is when you first moved in, you had like nothing. Yeah. Like there was like nothing here. And uh, I had a, without going into too many details for the listener, I kind of had like a total meltdown once when I was staying here with you and you had like no food. You didn't, not only did you have no food, you had no, you had no ability to eat food here. You had, there was no plates. There was no silverware. There was no thing to cook food. So we go to like the store and I love this. We go to Whole Foods and I'm like, and Bill's like, what should I buy? What, should, what kind of food should I buy? And I'm like, dude, here's a list. I like gave you a list of shit. And I'm like, get some like pasta, get some like this stuff, get some olive oil. And then Bill comes back from the store and he's got olive oil, but it's like a spray can of olive oil. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's what you're supposed to use on a cut. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. 
But instead, it's I'm like, <clears throat> Bill, I can't cook anything with this. And you were yeah. like, yeah, let's just go out. <laughs> yeah. The, the bodega's been good to us. I can't believe that ASAP Rocky shot something there. Um, okay, so let's get back to the point. Sorry, everybody, for that reset and that stupid story that I thought was going to be funny about <laughs> the uh, uh, about the olive oil. Um, olive oil is a word that is difficult to say when you've been drinking. I'll talk about the olive oh. oil. <laughs> the olive oil. Uh, okay, so let's get back to it. So you, so, so you wanted to be a professor, and it was yeah. basically, but it was to fulfill this kind of impulse that you had of being like, I want to be the smart kid. One million percent. I, w- I just wanted. I, I've had a lot of people. Um, you know, I've expressed this as an insecurity to you. I, I, I have a lot of times where I feel like people assume that I'm stupid, partially because I'm dyslexic and I've had trouble like reading. Yeah. It like out loud, uh-huh. and so. And so I've always been at this like weird like you know how I I just always wanted to be validated for that sure and I, and I felt like that would have been um kind of a crowning achievement and kind of like a a big thing where a lot of people would be like oh my god Will's really turned his life around kind of uh, kind yeah of I mean it would have been yeah so it's uh, those those would have been accurate narratives yeah a hundred percent and um so what ended up happening though my my first year of law school I um just um <clears throat> like um I woke up at 3:30 in the morning would go to class but i was kind of a fucking weirdo though like in my school so like, that what year was this when you got into Kent? 2014 got it okay and um i was just kind of a fucking weirdo and like i made friends but i was just kind of like off you know and i did good i did, like my first year i did really well um my first semester i think i was in like, the top 25 percent of my class when first all first grades came out and then, um, but I was also like a dating coach online and, <laughs> and like a coaching men, like in the millennium park and shit. Like, <laughs> did you really, did yeah, you actually meet up yeah, with yeah, millennium park and, coach and, uh, dudes? Um, that's great. I was a writer for like girls chase and, um, I was writing a serialized novel. I was just doing a lot of things and I was like preparing, I was a power lifter. I was driving like indie, I was like driving obscure states. So to this compete. is what I'm talking about is like, you're, you're, I just think like you're doing all of this shit at the same time. Yeah. And and I and also I I had done even though I don't claim this is my start I had done like an open mic, and um, when did you do your first open mic? So and 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 before that, let's talk about that. But then let's go into and why, uh, how you got into wanting to do that. Um. So my first open mic I ever did was in Austin, Texas, but I did at some coffee shop. Um. And then I didn't do it for like a really long time, but I wanted to do it in London. I just didn't have I wasn't just I was just it was just like I was writing writing novels like yeah um and then when I got to Chicago I did uh the atomic open mic uh the atomic comic open mic atomic comic the atomic comic this was like I want to say 2015 yeah like March 2015 or something like that got it and where was where I don't even haven't even heard of that yeah it was the last night it was going or whatever um you destroyed it you they had to close it after you well no i I, this is the fucked up thing i showed up i completely forgot this i showed up to the mic and um i waited for like 45 people and then they bumped me to let some nigga who never done comedy before go and i was like i've really like never done comedy (laughs) (laughs) um and, and that uh, man's name was Hannibal Burris. Right. (laughs) (laughs) um and then so the first mic i did in chicago i just is uh reed's um reads, yeah, reads local yeah and um it was a brian tracy thing kind of like i was just like no like i was just like one of those like i'm gonna like really just do it you know <laughs> and um but like the real 
um and then i bombed and then i was just like i'm never doing that again <laughs> and that's then, so funny man and then, oh wait so the atomic comedy hold on a second where was that where would that did that even take place um i it's it was at some theater that i think they do magic there now um it who's, was who, who's the comic who's the comic uh she has red hair she has like an amazon thing um in the chicago scene uh, she's not really in the scene but she's like a com j- definitely a comic um, uh, i don't know red hair i feel like i should know this yeah Oh wait, is she burlesque? She's a burlesque dancer. Uh, I don't know, but she's like she's just like in a comedy. Like she was, she's not really, she was never really part of the scene scene. But like you, you, she was around. Got it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. Wolf. So anyway, she used to run this thing. Yeah, and um, one of the things that I had a hard time. So when I, I, I told the story a lot of times where I masturbated on a plane. And that's how I started. Yeah, yeah. That's actually true. So I did like one open mic at Reed's, maybe two, then vowed never to do it again and focus solely on just writing. And, wow. And um, because I got rejected by the schools I had tr- applied well, to. What was your material that when you went up at Reed's? Just out of curiosity. Um, one, of the, the, one of the jokes was, uh, you know, with all this Ebola going around, I got to stop letting my girlfriend throw up on me after we have sex. <laughs> oh, my God, man. This um, is, wow. Okay. <laughs> Oh, wow, <laughs> this is uh, like a triple threat of yeah, a joke. Yeah, um, <laughs> you've got you've got international uh, health crisis. Yeah. You've got vomit, and you've got Bill's fucking. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I I really I I really can't remember anything else besides that. Yeah, but when I had gotten back, so after I, I oh was, with that headline, I don't know how you'd beat it. <laughs> um, but when I got so when I had gone to Malaysia and come come back, yeah. and um, I had masturbated on a plane. Um, that, this was just over a summer. I was supposed to do an internship that completely fell through. I just ended up spending a summer in Malaysia, Malaysia yeah. um, with family and kind of just dealing with, this was kind of a thing that fucked me up was, um, so my friend Selma, who is a genius and really smart, she got into Harvard through transfer and she messaged me. She's like, Hey, you got to come visit me in Cambridge. I was like, Oh my God, you got into Harvard. And like, you know, I had this, uh, reverse shot of Freud, also known as jealousy. <laughs> reverse so bill okay so so weeks ago <laughs> we're having this conversation and bill's like man you know that thing that you get when you when you're happy that someone else failed and i'm like yeah schadenfreude and he's like yeah i mean what's like the reverse of that yeah where they have something and you're angry and <laughs> I'm like, yeah, i think that's called jealousy dude yeah um and oh, but man. i it was it was kind of a a moment of reflection where i was like well you know you just didn't want that because all your actions just showed the opposite. You just, you know, I, I you like I stopped reading cases. Um, I just just did the enough to do well. And so you're still in law school, and suddenly you got this feeling of like, yeah, I'm just I don't want I don't want this. No, it would it didn't come up audibly like that. It was just like all the other things that suddenly I was, the wind was out of your sails. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It was just that it was in other places. Like I was just got it. Okay, and I really. I really wanted to just be known as a writer, like a, a novelist or a writer. Yeah. And I was w- working on this book that we've read to each other gaily earlier this year in this apartment. Yeah, it was really pretty gay. Um, we read of an academic drug we, addict. I, that's how I know I'm not gay, actually, yeah. is because I would we would have been dating. Yeah. <laughs> Bill and I sat down in this apartment and we were like, you know how we both wrote novels? Do you want to read them to each other? <laughs> <laughs> this was after me not connecting with Braveheart. 
Yeah, um, we tried to watch Braveheart and he didn't do it. Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, man, let me clean your semen off of my chest <laughs> yeah. and I'll go open my novel. Um, but um, yeah, so that w- those were kind of like the main things that I was like really focused on. But when I had come, so this was kind of crazy and this is just relevant because we just came from his party was um the first exposure i had to james was when i had like dysentery in malaysia <laughs> jesus and i i wanted to die because i was like i was like shitting until i was like dehydrated yeah and, it was the worst yeah and james is the number one thing that came up on google when i googled that and um, are you serious yeah yeah that is still, so funny still number three like the suicide hotline like google had to move him down on the algorithm because wow. of people complaining and um what I, was the article? What uh, was he? What did he write? Uh, but it was about him thinking about committing suicide. I think after he lost his money. But I was like, this guy's pretty cool. Let me yeah. buy his audio. This book. was James. This is James Aldinger. Yeah. Yeah. Who's writing the foreword to our book? To which, our book. Uh, yeah. yeah. He's an amazing crazy. man. So I was, it's and and just so the listeners aware, I also had dysentery. Except I was in the south of France when I got it. I was in Marseille. It's the it's it's actually the word. Like when you when you really like, I could shit myself to death. Like, you, and it's so funny because you're like. You, it's something. It's a thought that you would never have cross your mind until you've shit that much. Where you're like, I I, there's shit. nothing left in my body. Yeah, it, it's how like, am I not shitting an organ <laughs> yeah. right now? There's a fuck. My fucking my fucking gallbladder has got to be coming out of my asshole right now. It, it's <laughs> it's it's the absolute worst. And I like crawling and I'm listening to his book. Choose yourself, and it really as you <laughs> as you're dying on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But um, anyway, so like I was flying back from Malaysia and I was flying, I connected, I think connected flight from Hong Kong to Chicago. And um, and that's when you were like, time to rub one out. Yeah, I was just like, let me jerk <laughs> off on this plane. I've never, I, I texted Jay, I was like, man, I'm about to jerk off on this fucking plane. And then he didn't get back to me. I was like, man, this is gonna be so fucking funny. And I, I like, <laughs> and then I like jerk off in the bathroom and I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, this is hilarious. It's funny because I, for a long time, I thought, you know, I, I think I'm dealing with the bulk of Bill's uh personality externalization in the world now that i'm you're telling this story i think jay's the one who's mostly (laughs) yeah well and and when when so when i touched down that basically that night i went to go do a mic and um i i ate a huge dick because it wasn't that funny yeah um but then um another comic invited me out to a mic the next day over in irving park um natalie joseph's mic and who uh, was the comic who invited you um dude i am blanking on his name it's like an asian dude i forgot i'm like just blank on his name right now okay got it um and um like we we, we hung out like last time i was in <laughs> chicago uh, uh, no not last time but like like a yeah like a year jerry tran it's not jerry tran no 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 okay, um no i just I, I really can't remember his name right now it's got just it. like because uh, like what was funny is he didn't even show up to that mic uh but i showed he invited up. you and you came and he didn't show yeah. up that's so funny and then uh, that is such a comedian thing to do it's funny because I saw Tim Weisselbaum go up and um, the he this was this was actually fun. I saw Tim Weisselbaum go up and he used to do this thing where he would talk about how many mics he had done at that point and it was like something like five hundred and sixty two or some shit like that. And he had like bombed his dick off. And um, I was like, wait, you could do five hundred sixty two mics and still and be not this get shitty. <laughs> Yeah, and still be this bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, I love Tim Weisselbaum's comedy, but that I remember thinking like, wait, what? I just love Tim, man. He's yeah. just so, he's so insane. And, um. I got him on the pod. We got a great episode. I, um, but then. Two albums. Two albums on Spotify now. That's great. I, um, but then I just started going up all the time and like law school just started diminishing in importance. And, um. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then I had the, the moment 
on Yom Kippur, <laughs> um, <laughs> where I basically the JAG officer had come to our uh, school to basically you know have a showcase. Looked at my grades and stuff. And was like, oh yeah, you you definitely get in. There's like a dearth of people applying for JAG at that time. And um, I was like ready for it. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll serve my fucking country, be a fucking goddamn marine, like you know, follow that cultural narrative. Yeah, but once again, yeah, look at the identity in yeah. this situation. It, but it was clear, and I like you know, every William Batiste had served, so I was like, I would serve my country. This would be a cool ass job. Yeah. Well, we haven't mentioned your dad, Vietnam veteran. Yeah, dad, Vietnam veteran. My grandfather, Korea, Korean War and World War II veteran. So I was like, there. So to me, that was a big part of the cultural story, and I almost joined the Royal Marines. In graduating, like I was th- thinking about it, my senior year of college, yeah, um, because I was just so purposeless, and I was just like, I, I, I just want something that people could respect that I was doing, and that it would sound cool, like I was doing something out in the world, yeah. So anyway, this sounded like cooler than working big law, and um, I was like, okay, let me, let me fucking, let me just do the, let me do this, right? And so we had to set up a time for me to do physical fitness exam to see if I was going to be in shape enough to do boot camp, yeah. And um, I was, I was like. I was I was in a phenomenal shape <clears throat> and um and when um he had, he hadn't got back to me for a bit like a few weeks and on Yom Kippur I was fasting and like as it was explained to me I, I realized later on that this is atypical but I was doing the food and water fast and it was like you're supposed to spend the day thinking about if today was your last day of life what would you have done differently about your life well that's and, heavy and I was like really meditating upon that I, I wasn't you know asking for forgiveness I didn't know the cultural story behind it so I was kind of appropriating Yom Kippur I guess that's kind of funny yeah. and um but I honestly think me doing Yom Kippur every Yom Kippur makes me more Jewish than 99% of Jewish <laughs> comics yeah you really do it it's very funny to me because i remember the first time you did this and i was like people were i was like are you jewish bill and you're like nah (laughs) yeah but um and that one but it it um when i when i i realized i was like i don't want to be i don't want to be a marine i want to go to new york and do stand-up after law school yeah and um and i and once and once i had that realization i texted him i was like hey look i found a job uh, oh, he texted me that day. He texted me like an hour later, and I was like, oh, "I already found a job," which was a lie. Um, and then I told my mom, "I was like, hey, you know, I turned down the thing for the, the like Jag on the Marines, and I also um, I'm gonna be a comedian." And she's like, "Oh my, f- what the fuck?" Because she's heard me <laughs> that summer. I was like, "I think I'm gonna be a consultant that because I had studied behavioral economics that whole summer." Yeah. And I was like, "I'm gonna be a behavioral economics consultant, and now I'm gonna go into coffee shops and say how you can organize things and." Blah, blah. <laughs> You know, I I had just I was just like looking for something to have purpose, and I think one of the things that attracted me about stand up was that it was so, the the path at that point in time seemed so straightforward. You go to Mike's, you get better, you get famous. Yeah, right. Like that. Was, well, this was kind of this was the big subject of a lot of the conversations we used to have at that point. Yeah, which well, was basically like, how do we do more mics? How do we do more time? How do we like that was the whole thing. Yeah, it it was it was very very rudimentary kind of understanding of the game and and what what I would call the Hannibal model. Yeah, like, you know, and um, I I ran into you. So that was about like I think November of 2015, and I think I met you 2016. Mm, or, no, or Taylor, or uh, Taylor. Well, I, the first memory I have of you. So let me let me do two thoughts here. Let me conclude this kind of thread of us uh, talking about when we met, which was I. Re- the, my first memory of you was you were hosting Patsy's in Chicago, and you had on an outfit that was like the deepest V cut I've ever fucking yeah. seen. It was so deep it was like down to Bill's navel for Christ's sake. And then you had on like I'm exaggerating, but then you had on like a 
some kind of necklace with like a fur or something on it or something. And you had jeans and you were like talking and messing with the crowd. And I remember walking in and being like, who is this fucking idiot? Yeah. <laughs> and I, would... I, I, I say this only because my first, my first handful of memories with the, of you where I was like, I don't really like this guy. No, nah, I didn't like Lemon either because I thought <laughs> I, I I actually thought this is the funny thing about Lemon is if you if you hang out with Lemon long enough and you think you're the, for the first time you think he's actually just a pathological liar because you think <laughs> you you think there's like no way one person has done all this shit, <laughs> but then if you hang out with Lemon long enough you're like oh no Lemon actually did, did has done everything and he just is very specific about them but you had kind of a standoffish and like a like a posture and kind of, we just didn't like each other at first well yeah and you I, you reminded me of Miles Hendricks who I still don't like. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I, love, I, I love Miles. I'm I, sad I, you don't like him. Well, this is the problem I have with Miles, and I'll t- I, and I, I I often talk shade on your podcast, and I I will never stop. One of the things <laughs> that I don't like about Miles is he's really not self aware. Um, he basically was like, yeah, the thing about Burning Man is you learn that you're supposed to like be selfish and share with people. I'm like, you're the most selfish comic I know. <laughs> you only think about yourself, and I've never seen you help anybody else. You tool. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, yeah, but, I I could definitely see how Miles and I have have a similar. That's like, probably why I resonate with him a little bit. Yeah, you bo- you both were like would come in and be like, yeah. Well, because I had this big chip on my shoulder. All right, so let me say this. So if you guys met me in the comedy scene in 2015 in Chicago, I had I you first of all, if you had met me, the first thing you'll know is that I had been doing comedy for years before that because I would fucking lead with that shit whoever I spoke with. Yeah. I would just be like, listen, the first thing you got to understand, I've been doing this more than half my life. <laughs> like, I just, this is, and it was almost like I, it was almost, so if people don't like me in the comedy scene, it's almost because they must be tired of me being like, you know, I should be further ahead. Like, that was like every conversation I had for the better part of two years in Chicago. And uh, I think I finally made peace with it a little bit, a little bit. But, like, that was definitely my attitude. Yeah. I want and your attitude, hold on, I just want to say this real quick. And your attitude was you were just like, I'm hitting this with 110% energy. Like, I just, and so it was kind of like a, I don't give a fuck in a similar kind of way. Because you were just like, I'm squaring up and doing these mics and I'm moving on. I'm moving on as fast as I can. I'm doing 30 mics in a week. And that was when I was just like, who does this asshole think he is? Like, I've been doing it for 16 years. Like, and yeah. you were like, yeah, but I did 30 mics this week. Well, I had 120 minutes of stage time. Yeah. Well, what I so one of the things was I was just terribly unfunny and broadcasted very hard how hard I was working at maintaining uh, aesthetic of not being funny. Yeah. So I mean, like everybody who hated me during my Chicago, I I understand it. I would show up or I ruined mics because you, you changed the culture of Chicago open mic comedy. Yeah. Because you would show up. I mean, we would. I just talked to Lancey about this. Like, you would show up to mics so early. Noah, Noah, fucking um, Gutierrez. Yeah, Gutierrez would call you. Who r- produced a lot of mics in Chicago would call you Chicago's first comic, William Petit. Yeah, because you would show up like an hour and a half early, two hours early to something, and just wait and just write and just hang out. Like, yeah, it. Well, it was because I would get finished with like my law school classes, and I was just like, it was like my only thing. I was like, that was just like I was like, if I can get really good, I can like blow up. And, like, this is the thing is, like, I sucked at comedy. Everybody who didn't like me back then, I didn't get it. I was just like, oh, no, I was terrible. And it was 
that but i thought like if i could just add enough stage time i'd get better well i mean and you did though because i remember even after a while probably a year into us doing comedy we did uh a comedy show the one at finley dunn's that used to be run by that crew with chris Trani and uh pat yeah or yeah, and yeah. Uh, who's the other dude? He's a fucking agent. Drew, Drew Corb. Yeah, yeah, Drew Corb. I love Drew. Yeah, I haven't talked to him in a long time. He's a really Great good guy. Dude. Really good Great dude. Guy, really man. good dude. Looks like Zach Levi, the actor. Anyway, um, he uh, so we did that show, and I remember I had a lot of people who showed up to see me, and they were talking about how funny you were, and I was like, yeah, but like. <laughs> Me, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, the weird thing about that set was, um, I, I, it was where I started. Here's where I, I don't blame people for not booking me. And everybody who doesn't get booked, the reason you're not getting booked is a, e- very easy to understand. <laughs> <laughs> you're not funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not funny, and you, and the times you see yourself kill, um, number one is not as hard as you think, and nobody saw it. <laughs> And so everyone saw the nine bombs you forgot about so you could sustain your self-esteem and self-concept while you call yourself a comedian. That's really funny. But um yeah, but like I would Everybody go, saw those. Yeah, everybody saw every one of those and they were actually worse than you thought. Yeah. But, um <laughs> and when I was doing that set, um I did like all new material on it and I was just like, "Oh, I'm I'm just like not I'm always going to be doing new material. And so like, not only am I going to do very inflammatory material, I'm going to do new, not polished inflammatory material. Um, so yeah, I get it. You know, that was just, that's so funny, man. But, um, I think one of the things that was, but you were also at the time, I think part of it was that you were also at the time dressing like you were in a seal video from the 1990s. Oh yeah. Well, I had Adam Quaslow. This is funny. This is how Adam Quaslow changed my life. Um, he basically told me you can't be funny and wear tight shirts. And I was like, that sounds a hundred percent right. So I went out and bought like eight <laughs> turtlenecks and a peacoat. Cause that's funnier. <laughs> Looking yeah, like Lex Luthor. Yeah, you, t- you were like a black Lex, Lex Luthor. Yeah. Lex Luthor. Pardon me. And I just remember thinking, like, a Bill out here looking like he's a super villain. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that, it, it was, it was like, I was like, oh, this is me now. 100%. No, <laughs> that is, a, I, w- I am turtleneck man. Now. We were just expecting James Bond to come in and, like, any minute. Just yeah. Like <laughs> and, um, but yeah. And so I, I went through all these things because it, it comes back to the same central thing. And I think a lot Identity, of times. Identity. Yeah. yeah Where, and I think you have this problem too. It's just, it's just hard to represent yourself quickly. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I enjoyed about writing a book with you and kind of doing bigger projects and like kind of flexing on a higher stage and being around kind of smarter people and getting other ways to get my ideas out is that I don't feel the same need to represent that I'm intelligent on stage. Mm. And um, because there was a point where I was like, oh, I don't think people think I'm smart enough. Let me just like do these like massively. Do you think you think your relationship's real? It's actually just a game that you're playing, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, (laughs) quasi poor Drew Michael act outs on stage. That's Um, funny. um, I remember when you thought Drew Michael was the answer. Yeah, man. He, he he's good at comedy, man. It's a funny motherfucker. Yeah, I I honestly and like shots fired, but this is my premises are amazing. I remember you being like my premises are better than Drew's. Yeah, and that I I will maintain my premises and that's the only part of my comedy. <laughs> um <laughs> because it's the only part that doesn't have to be funny. As is William Petit all premise comedy. <laughs> that's just that's just a TED talk. <laughs> that's just a I one of my favorite things to do when I hosted open mics was I especially with you would be like if I hosted Patsy's and you were the first up I'd be like ladies and gentlemen get up for the spoken word poetry of William Oh uh, yeah like, 
<laughs> um, and I mean, like, here's the thing is like Patsy's was really great. Um, just like, I think one of the things I, I really, and I, th- I heard Chicago, it's not the same. No, somebody else hosts it now. Well, no, it's just, I'm talking about like the sense of community. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. That's changed in completely. Yeah. And, um, I think because we've gone past Dunbar's number. Yeah. I think a little, it might be, um, Dunbar's number is like to have a, just Google drive. it. Yeah. Just, okay. We'll just move. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But um yeah, and then moving to New York though, Edinburgh was a great palate cleanser from Chicago. So like yeah, so let's back up a little bit because we're gonna we're gonna walk through this. I know this is very this is getting really podcasty, but no, no, like it's great. Yeah, it's a lot of this is a good conversation. But like so, so you were because I think that one of the things that attracts you to stand up comedy is that you can t- you can be you can be yourself in a way that you are determining every moment of who you are in front of an audience. And I feel like specifically for you, you've dealt with this social relationship of identity in a way that a lot of people haven't had to deal with. I think I have a little bit, but not to the same level that you have. Um, but I think that for I think that one of the things that attracts you to comedy is that you get to determine that every moment that someone is interacting or, or is experiencing you. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things that I can imagine maybe it tracks you to the, to comedy. Well, uh, one of the things that made me want to be a comic was there's an episode of Louie, the di- disgraced Louie, uh, <laughs> um, where he um, talked about, it was the episode with him and um, who's that guy who's really funny but like can't blow up because he's too fucked up? Uh, um, Rick Shapiro? No, no. You, you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, suicide episode. Oh, you're talking about uh, Corey Wood opened for him. Um. Yeah, Doug Stanhope. Doug Stanhope and um. Corey Wood opened for Doug Stanhope. Dude, that that's great. That that's great. Um, Corey Wood is a really funny comic, and I think he's actually better than Doug Stanhope. And I stand by that shit. Whoa. Yeah. Actually, I don't know about. That. I can't wait to see Doug and say you said that. Yeah. I mean, you probably. I don't give a fuck. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Doug's gonna be like, who the fuck is William yeah, T? Yeah. Um. Doug will probably go. I'm not funnier than anybody. Yeah. Um. But he he's like, I thought we were in this to find truth, man. Like, uh. Uh, Louis trying to bra- like say like oh my god the Tonight Show just called I, I'm gonna do a set and he's like I-, I thought we were in this to find truth and I was like oh yeah like people laugh when shit's real and yeah that that was kind of like the first like I was like oh man I want to represent truth and that's still the case like you know like with a lot of my like kind of like premises and stuff you like dig that. really hard for them yeah and I mean like and like I think that um it's not just about being funny no it, it, to me I and this is evident in my comedy but I will choose it's be- definitely not about being funny <laughs> <with> you <laughs> Yeah, every time I will choose like trying to drop knowledge and make people feel uncomfortable with more con- than be fun, more be, than go for a laugh. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it never was that more prevalent than in Edinburgh, which was a great experience. Uh, number one, like I think our friendship, because you, me, and actually Josh with executive comedy, kind of just like focused that we need because I think the opportunity cost for us was higher than other comics. Like other comics, it was like. I, I was literally I I literally did not go to an interview where I could have got paid one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year because comedy. I was yeah. just like I was like I have made up my mind. I'm a, gonna be a comic. Yeah, and I think with you, you you were giving up like opportunity to quadruple your pay. Oh and, yeah, and all these other things and like you know both of us are attractive guys who know how to date who've been in the dating realm and dating world and so it's just like we're giving up dates and we're giving up a life yeah Yeah. and same with josh so when we all came together on executive comedy it was kind of like and we had all kind of was just like we need this on here yeah Yeah. we need this to work out yeah we or 
I, I just need this to work out. Yeah, what are we doing? We got something has to happen. Yeah. And um, it, there was always a focus on the business component and not trusting because I didn't trust. It. I very quickly I learned that advice that I was getting from people who had been doing mics for seven years was not the people to be getting cultural capital yeah. from. Yeah, to listen to. Yeah. Um, it, it's yeah. One of the things that I think has been really productive about our friendship is that we've. I feel like we've just like with that, you know, hundred days to 365 days is I feel like we kind of push each other a lot to do stuff that like we ended up doing Edinburgh together because basically I was doing Edinburgh and then you were like, fuck it, I'm doing it. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And like, we just got, that's just how that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think that, I think that that, I mean like you're, I was thinking about, you know, our, our, our mutual friend, James Altucher and the fact that that happened because we used to get together to do uh, Undeniably Funny was like this group we came up with where we were like, we're going to make it in comedy. How are we going to do it? We like met up every Saturday. for Sunday. We- Sunday for like weeks, pardon me, <laughs> for weeks. And that was just one of the things is we had this challenge where like for every day we're going to email someone we don't think is going to respond to us. Mm. And then James responded to you. And 100%. you you were going to have an ask for someone we don't, we think we're going to get a no from. Yep. 100%. And then you asked James to be on your podcast and James said yes. And then he asked you to be on his podcast. Yeah, that that was crazy how how kind of like all of that kind of began to manifest. And like here's the thing is like you know, I think acting predictably is the biggest problem in a lot of people's. I mean, it's my biggest problem. Yeah, you talk about the uh, let me just say this real quick. Yeah. You I've been thinking about this thought a lot lately because what I think you're about to say is increasing randomness. Yeah. And like I've been thinking about this a lot lately where in you you talk about increasing randomness and like just I'm just going to start doing shit and see what comes back to me in the world. That's a. I think that's huge, man. Yeah, and the thing is, is that we've talked about this. One of the biggest problems with a lot of women in New York who've been here, who are like maybe in their early thirties, there's a cynicism that kind of manifests. Yeah. Um, and cynicism is is this is where we noticed it, but it's also prevalent in comedy. Yeah. And what cynicism is is that you pretend as if you already know the the result of an action you haven't taken. Yeah. And um, so the reason why Bill's saying this for women in New York is like there was this whole streak of time where he or I would be on a date or going on a date or something. And what we would hear back from the woman who either one of us would be going on a date with would be like, I've seen it all. Blah, blah, blah. You're just like everybody. And it's like, dude, we haven't even met really. Yeah. And you're like already telling me how this relationship is going to go. That's that's the cynicism. I already know all the conclusions. I already know all the things that are going to happen. Exactly. And so just like we do, we immediately started extrapolating this to comedy and work and all kinds of other shit. Yeah. And it's it's really because you have to whenever you notice that in someone else, you have to look for where you do it yourself. Mm. Right. And so like the real power in that is, is like I and you do it tacitly. Right. You don't ask you, you don't ask somebody like uh, uh, somebody to op- whether or not you can open for them because you assume the answer is going to be no. Yep. Right. Or you 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 just do this a lot where we were like, oh, we already assumed. And this sense of cynicism gets deeper and deeper the longer you get in the trade. Because you start looking for evidence against your own interest rather than evidence for. Yeah. And um, when we had. um, Are we good? Yeah, we're all good. Yeah. And so when. I think you and I had gone to Ed when we number one, you had gone into Edinburgh and you were so kind enough to split your room with me. Um, and that whole thing started coalesce and you did something that I would have never done, which is you let a lot of other people come and do an, another show yeah. out there. Um, and I was like, man, that number one, like I, like I get real defensive cause it's like, you know, people are just like, 
you've done just so much for the scene. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and I think how many clips I've given people. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just kind of, you know, pearls before swine. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. The, the perennial, uh, subject matter of this podcast is shitting on the Chicago comedy scene. I yeah. Feel like. Yeah. Um, but one of the things about Edinburgh was it was a place where, you know, I, I got to do an hour and we got to do an hour and it was just like, Oh man, like I actually had uh, times where I did well for a whole hour and it definitely wasn't the usual, but it had happened. I mean, you had, you had highs in Edinburgh that like were, I mean, this goes back to the thing that I would, you know, people would, you know, people would would criticize you maybe in the Chicago comedy scene. I remember saying like, it, it was the same thing I would defend you with in Chicago that then I saw in Edinburgh, which I was like, dude, Bill gets Bill Bill just hits notes that other people don't hit, and like whether or not they strike true and people like it, he's hitting notes that people are responding to, and so it'd be crazy because we go to Edinburgh and you could get a standing ovation from a packed room of people. Bill got Bill, and this is a hundred percent true. Bill. A dude came out and saw Bill's show, then had his brother fly in from Ireland to come and see Bill's show. The same dude saw it twice, called his brother, said, you got to come and see this guy's show, and then had people come out. I mean, Bill got, you hit highs that were higher than I think anybody else who were in Chicago hit. I mean, anybody else who did came out from Chicago that year to 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 hit at the comedy show. Thank you so much. And I also had a lower low. I, I yeah, you had a pretty yeah, you had pretty low lows. Yeah, if you if you Google past the sixth page of me, there's a a, a review of me that begins with William. Bet- uh, um, no matter what William Petit, how no matter how William Petit ends this 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 joke, it's never okay to beat your wife unless yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that I almost when I read that I almost printed it out and put it on a plaque and sent it to you. Yeah, and it it was. You know, it was kind of like it was cool. It was like um, it. But one of the things that Edinburgh kind of really did was, you know, being back in the UK and just having experiences when I got to London and just like in Edinburgh and just feeling like attractive again. Because I I think one of the things that I didn't comedy did can damage your self esteem. Oh, without a doubt. And you know, in a way in which it's kind of imperceptible, but your soul takes like you're you're not supposed to take that much confirmation that you're not supposed to be doing what you're doing yeah <laughs> like yeah, that's you know, constant disconfirmation yeah you're and, constantly failing yeah. all the time and um and and kind of like you know like you know i had like lots of suicidal ideations before i left like all my, my i wrote an like my hour was about suicide and i yeah. was like oh it's just because i'm creative no i was like horribly depressed and so moving to new york and this is this is one of the things i loved about new york new york finished me in a way in which chicago would ever have yeah um and you know i got to do things i mean i almost had like almost had three shows get picked up here. Like, you know what I'm saying? Well, two yeah. were, that were mine. And then one, I was in a pilot that got picked up by CNBC. So there were things that got happened. It's just like all of them just didn't happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, like, like, and I, I well, got- that's the big thing that I keep getting as I get older is most, most projects. So the, the unfortunate truth is that most projects don't work out Yeah. that like, but it, but it, but it's the doing, but part of it is the doing of it. And it's like you have to you're doing this for reasons. Some things work out, but you have to accept that most projects don't work out. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do them. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is this and this is kind of why I made the movement to self help stuff is because projects aren't assets. And I had to realize, like, what did I really did? I really want a career as a stand up comic or did I really want the freedom that I just thought would naturally come with being a comedian? And um, 
and I was just like, oh, I want to I want to basically build something that can profit off of that isn't um, that that it can't be scrapped by somebody being like, yeah, we're going to take this in a different direction or that needs a conspiracy yeah. number of 40 people. Yeah. You know, and like you wanted to start to rely on things that you could produce yourself. Exactly. And like this is the thing. This is what we realized was like people are broke. Like yeah, the, the companies, these television companies, don't have money. And so that was a big okay. So for the listener who's listening to this whole episode, uh, we went to MIPCOM, like we had mentioned a fucking hour ago or more, and th- I, that was a big takeaway. Was you were like, dude, none of these companies have any goddamn money. Mm-hmm. And you can see it yourself, man. You can go online, check out. Speaking of Tom Takar, go listen, go watch Tom Takar's clip on um, YouTube from Comedy Central presents. Or Comedy Central's whatever Comedy Central stand up like they did they did like a premium blend type thing where Tom Takar was on it. Tom's hilarious, but Tom his clip on on Comedy Central has like I don't know sixty thousand views. And you're like, dude, there are people who have millions of views who post their own shit have no brand, you know, nothing. No, They're not yeah. even in the city. Who's the guy in Chicago that was posting clips recently that every one of them was blown up? Um, uh, well, there was Joe Kilgallen. Had Joe some. Kilgallen. Yeah, I mean he he. Had, we were talking about. I this. got thirteen thousand on my most recent clip that I posted. Twenty percent of the way to Tom's situation. Well, I mean that's more than most Conan clips that have come out in the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, and so we, I moved here when the power dynamic shifts. was starting to shift. Was it had started to shift before that? Yeah, but it was. It was surfacing. I mean, just think about it. We were we got into the uh, Funny Planet po- uh, pilot got into uh, New York Television Festival. That was the last New York Television Festival. And I think. how many before that? They had, they had like twenty years. Oh yeah, they were running for a long time. They didn't do it last year. Yeah, and, and I think it's because everybody in the industry, the writing is on the wall. Mm-hmm. Like people are losing. Uh, so we go to MIPCOM. We start talking to all these different outlets, dude. Nobody has money. Nobody has money. They're trying to get banks to invest in stuff. Now you can't show them a good business plan because streaming service fucks up business plans. Yeah, you can only have no data. No, no. You, Netflix no. has the data. Amazon has the data. You don't have the data. Not only that, well, with um, with traditional TV, you can be like, well, you could market it to this audience that or you're trying to get in your blah, 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 and you can use these kind of advertisers, whereas streaming doesn't have advertising. Yep. Not only that, um, so they this is the big difference. For anybody who's writing a television pilot, this is I'm going to give you the game, is that it costs close to a million or $2 million to make a television series. And streaming services are only buying completed series. So the ask for a television show is a $2 million ask, where it used to be a $30,000 ask. Just for the pilot. Because they would shoot, run the pilot, rating's good, then people will fuck with it. Yeah. And so it's a completely different ask. So I think that the movement that a lot of people should make if you're trying to get something is towards movies. Because movies, number one, there's a lot more distribution methods that don't just exist within the streaming platform. So you can distribute it. There's all sorts of different ways you can distribute a movie, and it's way easier to get funding. If movie can, if you get shoot it on a budget, ninety thousand dollars, and it can still look really good, and um, it's a lot more straightforward on how you can go about that process, and you can probably get a lot more cameos. Yeah, it's been just. I mean, the industry's been changing so, so much, man. It's been fascinating to me because I feel like there's. It's like the Wild West a little yeah. bit. 
Like, what's going to happen is, is bit. but anyway, the point I guess we were going toward is that, like, we learned basically these guys don't have any goddamn money. No, not only it, no a big thing, also, just to mention it because uh, before we move on, is branded content is like mm-hmm. really big. Like, that, that's been going and approaching brands directly, but that's like even bizarre because it's like, we're going to go talk to, you know, Funny Planet, we talked to um, Airbnb and um, we talked to uh, TripAdvisor. And we talked to like all these different brands to be like, yeah, we want to produce this series in in conjunction with you guys. But it, 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 I, I don't know. There's something about it where it's like you're working directly with this company that's giving you money. It almost compromises your creative vision in many different ways. Well, the the thing is that I kind of like realize is like, you know, and through this entire experience and through our other friends, it's kind of more success is like you should go there with way less. Um, the less you have, because you basically want them to paint what they want onto the the, situation, onto the situation. You want to be an open canvas and have them see what they want to see. And if you have too much vision, people talk about vision a lot, but it's like, if you have too much vision, too specific or detailed of a vision, it's number one, they can't feel important. So like that, that was what happened. So I wrote a, they can't invest in it because you've already completed the idea. Exactly. I I wrote a show called crypto.comedy with uh, James Althusser. And this is at the time he had hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising behind him. And like, basically it was like a really big point. And Amblin loved, liked the script, but they were like, we don't, we want a named writer on this. So they were going to bump me off, bump him off, get rid of the idea. (laughs) <laughs> and, and then rewrite something and i was just not gonna be a part of it and that some um somebody was trying to broker a deal with us in apple tv but then this producer guy just kept trying to change things so he could get a co-writer so you you have this thing where people are trying to weasel their way in into the same yeah if there's any momentum behind your project yeah and so you, i mean the same thing was happening with funny planet like we had we had a handful of different studios that i won't mention uh, kept saying to us they're like yeah we'll sign you we want to like do want to like produce your pilot send us your footage We'll start editing it. We're going to put it together in these different kinds of ways. And, you know, me and Zach and Brendan were all like, I don't know if we should do this because this feels a little odd. These, meanwhile, this studio, just for the listener, if you think this sounds shady and you're like, I don't know if I would do that, they, they have a really highly rated show on Netflix. And, and you've, you've probably watched it. And so we're like, this is a great studio that we're going to work with. It's going to be amazing. Later, we get some news that these people are like the same people we were talking to, get like busted for all these like ethical things in Variety magazine. And we're like, it's it's fucking weird, man. Like they're just trying to. They would probably be taking our footage, repurposed it, cut us out completely, taken our footage, gone to somebody else, given the idea, change it completely again, and then they would have like thrown other people onto it. A, a million percent. Because we threw the money on to get the original footage. That's the only thing they wanted. The raw footage to change it up, to pitch it to different people. A hundred percent. And here's the thing that a lot of times they count on is is that you can't afford an IP attorney. No, there's so, no fucking way. So, it's so expensive. So, you know, like the, the to take that to litigate to litigate out because they'd litigate it out. You know what I'm saying? So because, you know, you're not. So the, a lot of times you're getting in this place of dens and like you're, you if you want to get a TV show made you have to understand about tax rebates you're going to have to understand about k- different studios getting involved yep. there's so many processes that are going about that we were not privy to back when we're sitting around a, a, as a, a writing exercise like hey like sit and let's write a pilot like you know in, in in Chicago you're like thinking like yeah like this thing's run on on ideas and it's like no it's run yeah. on capital now we're in now we're sitting in a fucking in Cannes in the the Palais Royale in Cannes France listening to a lecture 
lecture about how you can take advantage of different tax rebates all over the world, basically, yeah. to shoot your thing. How you can shoot in Atlanta and Vancouver and uh, Israel and get all of these monies re- you know, sent back to you or whatever. And it's like, that's the shit you actually got to know. 100%. And they don't teach it at Tish because I have friends who, who go to Tish and they don't, they're like, wait, what? And this is the thing is because the game is is hidden from people who are academics or a lot of times what they'll do is let's say you have four million followers or something and that you have they can put some real gas behind you. They hide that part of the process of them asking for money from you even. So you don't know it. You assume that they write the check, but they're actually asking for money from several other sources. So um, learning about all of this stuff in here, opening for Bill Burr, do, doing pre- like podcasts and serious. I realized like, oh, I've done like really cool stuff. But none of this is is becoming money, right? Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, you know, Ugh, damn it. Yeah, and like you know, I was in the crypto space. That was cool, made money off of that. But like, I was like, the, in, within stand up itself, I was just like, the, there was still a huge question mark. And um, and then, so then I, yeah, that that's kind of where we're at right now. Where it's like, after all of that, after kind of just seeing a lot of projects get pew pewed for no reason or that like, you know, people not getting paid or things taking a really long time or people's projects getting taken apart four years after they were approved and written about in the Atlantic. And I was just like, I'm not betting my life on, on something that inconsistent for people who don't even have power anymore. And the thing is, is that people are using a dated metric on how to succeed a lot of times, which is a dated, what I'll call like a dated manual. Like you're using an old map. You're using a map. You're using that was a map that worked 30 years ago. 30 years ago, and like that's not the case anymore. But the emblems are still the same. And we've talked to you about this before, where a lot of comics are concentrated on feeling like a comedian rather than being a comedian. Mm. And there's two different things: feeling like a comedian is yeah, going up every night and performing at shows. Being a comedian is writing that shit on your taxes. Yeah, you know. And the thing is, is that that the line is no longer that straightforward. And so, um, yeah. I think that there. I don't know, man. I mean, this is a shifting world. So I, it feels like, uh, you know, we've we've run the gamut in all kinds of subjects and gone off the rails a number of times. But I guess I just getting getting back to this is like it feels like you know you've you've with this with the masterclass you've been working on in the last year. It feels like you're you're re, you you said this quote. I've repeated it to a few people. Um, you should live in New York when you know why you're living in New York. You should not live in New York if you do not know why you're living in New York. Exactly. And it can happen where you you know why you're here when you come here. And then you get all these other things that happen. And you're like, oh, I don't need to be here right now. Let me come back here because rent's too expensive. Like one of the big th- decision things was like one month of rent here was three months in Cannes. Or three months in Nice and three months in Paris. Yeah. right, Or two, two months in Paris or whatever. And um, so when I... I, I basically went with the frame control masterclass, which, you know, comedy people, you, you know, it's just like persuasion shit. It, it really, yeah. it really, you know, I, I just like got awoke to the affiliate world and digital marketing and all this other stuff. And it's just like, oh, wow, you can make a lot of money and just not be asking pe- people for stage time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but like when when I made that transition, it was like. You know, this is the hardest thing I think for a lot of comics do because when you make decisions away from comedy, it's everyone's so aware that you're not doing shit in comedy. Yep. Right. So like I and it's hard because your your whole identity is built around it. Yeah, and like that's how people kind of know you, and that's kind of how you know yourself. And um, so when I made these decisions to basically focus on like 
you know, like shooting a product, like like the RSD pickup artist community and all this other crap. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like th- this, these things have no currency in comedy. And like one of the problems sometimes you and I have this, too, is we have a lot of things that are currency to people in conversations that aren't comedy. But in comedy conversations, we don't have the same. level. Oh, of yeah. Currency. Like none. Yeah. And, and comedy is such a cult that the reason. So all cultures are normal. What um, all cultures are normalized cults. Right. But the thing about comedy, comedy is a cult. Like well, there are certain emblems that mean something. Yeah. And certain emblems that mean fucking nothing. The it's fact- going to be I mean, I could have a whole career doing stand up, you know what I mean? And make a ton of money and I'll still be angry that I didn't get CYSK. Uh, One million percent, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and that was CYSK for me. But like maybe like Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. Or, or whatever. whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, w- Colbert, what- Fallon, name it another place. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like those kind of things where it's like. Oh, and the the thing is, is that when you're speaking to people about what you've done in the past year, it if you if it just isn't comedy, you could made all the money in the world. If it's not comedy, it doesn't have relevance. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the hard things is because you kind of abstract yourself out of this hierarchy system, which actually makes you less funny. The mm. hierarchy of comedy makes you less funny mm. because number one, just the way your hormones work, you release cortisol when you feel like you're low status. And you release less testosterone. And so when you think you're at the bottom of a hierarchy, you're just going to perform less well. Yeah. And um, that's one of the best things about being in New York. It's such a big goddamn scene that there's no scene. It doesn't matter it what doesn't you matter. do. It doesn't fucking matter. It's kind of crazy, man, because it's like it, 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 it doesn't matter what you do in the sense that like, I mean, it matters what you do because you don't know who's going to be in the audience. But like, it doesn't matter what you do in the sense that you're like, I'm never going to run into these people again, mostly. Yeah. But here's the thing. Even if those people are in the audience, I remember when Big J said I was funny, like and like uh, Josh and I did the roast battle and all this other crap. And then there was like all it was filled with agents there that night. And not one goddamn one of them talked to me. And we, <laughs> and we, we got compliments from like really great comedians. And they said that we were like really good. And they just like walked by me and Josh. And Josh is a completely marketable guy. I'm a marketable Super guy. Super marketable, yeah. And um, the jo- thing- I mean, Josh has been on Netflix. Yeah, but you know, and like the thing is, is that we, we have like credits and stuff like that. But the thing is, is that like, you know, it actually doesn't matter who's in the fucking room. Yeah. Um, it, it matters whether or not you have clout. And yeah. I think that um, or whether one of those guys in the audience happens to have something they can put you in right now, right now. And if, if you have kind of like a weird looking aesthetic, like I realized early on, like I'm never going to win the Indian guy thing. Like, you, you know, I love Vic. Vic is always going to cast as the Indian guy before me. Yeah. You know, um, Vic Pond. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not I'm never going to win the black guy. Thing. Nick Oak was going to we need a black lawyer guy or, you know, like. The, yeah. The, the, so the thing is, is that I just learned early on. You and I have the same problem. We're niggas who don't get picked. Yeah, and that that is technically Bill. I'm a cracker who doesn't th- get picked. I, dude, I don't. I don't <laughs> see color. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's like we we are kind of people who have to create our own space to do things, and that's kind of like well, I was like, all right, let me make these fucking digital assets. You've done the same thing. You're making money non locally, and it's just kind of like why kind of su- subjugate yourself to a system that there's such a glut of individuals. Yeah that you cannot be valued appropriately so the thing is is that happens that a lot of people don't realize so this so a lot of there's a lot of um bloggists and people talking about why is it when women have more access to men than ever and more choice than ever with dating apps um to the highest quality men that they've ever had as much choice as ever that women are the least happy with relationships that they've ever been. Mm. And that's because we actually don't want choice. That's why authoritarian regimes are the kind of norm now. And they're resurfacing is because 
Um, they the people more, don't want to have to take that responsibility. They don't want to take that responsibility, but also the more options we have, the more irrational our decisions become. I mean, that's what dating in New York is. Yeah, be, because you 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 cannot come up with an active measure of quantifying it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so and the same goes with comedic talent. Now, and now that we're kind of busting out of a space where, I mean, we in New York, it if you get a comedy central thing or jimmy fallon it doesn't mean as much as it used to even three four years ago yeah so that like even the kind of the accreditation system is kind of deteriorating it's breaking down and um so yeah um yeah that's kind of like a diatribe or whatever but um yeah i i think what the underlying point of you're saying is is that there's an open kind of field to run in in this kind of way yeah that's why i'm coming out with my tiktok channel (laughs) <laughs> YouTube channel. I'm dead serious, and I'm talking about like why white supremacists are white supremacists, like why all this other stuff. Because I realized that the real, real value comes from talking about these issues in a real polished way. Mm. And um, if I can get the clout first, then I can get the stage time, and then I can get better. Because like, there's a point in which where mics actually just make you worse. Because you, it, yeah, you, you need know, a lot of time. And it's not even time. It's just like number one, you have to put a value proposition on your time. Right, and if you're running all over town, you you you're you're a very advanced person, right? Um, in terms of making money, yeah. And you running around town for two to three hours trying to get up for five minutes is just actually a, a waste of time. Wait, and then you take the ROI time. is really bad. And on top of that, you you might be, you know, getting wrong information. Like people think they're like getting information on whether or not something's funny. I've had it where jokes that people. Did not laugh at, like I've screamed about on this podcast before. Um, and then I go into a real audience and they laugh. Well, so, I think a great example of that is I did Brendan Gay's show at the Bowery Electric. Murdered. Yeah, murdered. And a lot of that did material. Did better than, than um, a Daily Show guy. Yeah, than the dude on a Daily Show. And uh, and he knows who he is. Yeah. And anyway, I the I did all that tall people material. None of that does. I've done that in open mics all over the place. And in Chicago and New York, doesn't do well ever. And then I get up at that show, crushes so hard. It, like it's it's just it, it, there's something there's a qualitative difference in in the in the in the quality of the audiences you're doing something to. A hundred percent. And so, Rob, and it doesn't mean that open mics are bad. Period. No. Full stop. But like, make, basing your ability to get better on those is just not going to happen. They have a ceiling that happens actually a lot quicker than a lot of people assume. Well, it's like when we were doing the whole comedy. I remember, uh, you know, when you were like. Uh, doing the year-long thing and i was doing the 100 days six weeks in i think we were like oh the, we're not getting any better anymore no i dude i i, I got worse throughout that year like i got i got to a point where i was worse than like six months in yeah and um and i, I was heartbroken and destroyed and like i just was like by the end of it i was just like shell-shocked and um but like what i would say is this is like my my primary focus for next year since i built like ways to make money is now just clout yeah just clout and and i'm gonna reverse engineer everything which i thought was going to just happen because i was gonna be good enough at comedy and what you realize is is the commodity isn't your comedy and your commodity isn't even your marketability your commodity is what you are at that moment and whether they can fan those flames to be something more Hmm. and i honestly don't think they can fan the flames even anymore what what's what show does everybody watch 
I can't. I have no. I have no idea. You know, there, there's like, wh- where, where are you gonna put me? That I'm gonna, where, where? You know, Pornhub. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but like, I could get on the for you page of TikTok, and then all of a sudden, I can get like 30 million views, which is more people than watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. So you, you just take a look. Like, there's access. There's so much more access than there used to be, and you just need to not fall into these social prisons. But you will, because we all get sucked into the cultural machine. Yeah. Well, I and that's what your book's going to be about, basically, is is uh, is is reverse. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say reverse engineering, but dismantling the cultural memes and the cultural frames that you don't realize are driving your your ship. Yeah, and uh, like so, like, and this is, and if we could just talk about this, I know you're getting tired, but uh, I just want to talk about the power bible. Yeah, go ahead, man, do it. Um, is like so the power bible was really uh, really I think when we wrote that. Um, it kind of changed how I viewed myself because I didn't think I was actually able to produce something that good. Mm. Um, it's actually a really amazing book, and I think out of all the things that have happened in my life, from giving the commencement address at my high school when they wanted to expel me to like <laughs> fucking, you know, like time what a wild life, man. Yeah, it's like all all these crazy things that have happened to me. Bill Burr, the fucking the Power Bible to me, even with zero validation, proved to me something about myself that I thought was not true, and it proved me wrong. And it also proved me right. And so in that, that's a, at its core a self-help book. Yeah. And there have been points where you've had to dial me back from making it into kind of a, a academic exploration into some of these ideas, mm. even though there's philosophical concepts that permeate the text. Yep. And um, with the holocron, which is the one about tr- the transcendence of I, um, culture, tribalism, and identity, that is going to be not so much as a manual, but kind of an exploration similar to Joseph Campbell or like, you know... Um, Carl Jung, where I'm, I really want to basically kind of make a philosophical stance about the metaphysics and how our identity wa- operates interpersonally mm. and um, also internally, and um, and how how we experience those things. And so, uh, I think I want number one. I want to tell thank you um, for kind of embarking on this process with me which kind of gave me the self-esteem because a lot of times we will have an idea that we might have a talent for but we don't have the skill there and that the point of having a tribe or a community of individuals is to basically um have your community take you places that you wouldn't have gone on your own yeah and um and i think that the power bible was that for me actually not i think i know and so, like moving forward, it's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I I feel like uh, I just that came out of uh, I think us really being I was like we just got to fucking put down in words a lot of the stuff we we really are talking about uh, all the time. Yeah, and because we start off with the dating thing book, and it was just was like going really well like the themes of dating and, and sales which never end up being anything we have a manuscript it's like 60 yeah, pages it's like 60 pages and isn't and, isn't anything yet and then like the thing about the power bible was like that's that book's probably like the original manuscript probably like 450 yeah, pages, pages man it's super long yeah you know and, and cut some so much of it out and to dial it down to like its most important bits and the, there's a thing that's redemptive the the thing that's what's interesting about stand-up that we kind of is like there's such quick we get validation so quickly for our process right you 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 get oh fucking the joke worked and it really kind of fucks you up when you're working on something as big as a book yeah because you want validation yeah you I mean uh, James still has a manuscript man he might get back and be like guys this isn't very good no, I mean <laughs> that he's he's, or, he's already read half of it and he's he's blown away 
And I just the 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 amount it, it's so it, it has been so satisfying to me to send that manuscript over to different people and have them get back to me right away and be like, This is fucking amazing. Yeah. And like how did you got like how did you guys do this? It, exactly. And it was like And I'm like you know, multiple decades of near insanity. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> and, 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 but like to me, so like the working on the, these ma- massive kind of undertakings and building these products out that are, are kind of like one of the big, so I've like, I'm like famous on Quora, which is like saying I am a, I'm a, a minister in Turkmenistan, <laughs> you know, um, it just like has no, like, like I have 71,000 followers. Like I was like more famous than Jabuki whenever he was blowing up yeah. on his, on his Twitter thing. <laughs> Um, you know, I had like so many viral things and like, but it has no currency in comedy, yeah, which, yeah. Was, which just is so translate to literally anything and else. It, it's like having a passport that doesn't get you access. I'm to just country. about to watch you do this on TikTok a second time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just get like 8 million followers and they're all girls that I can never have sex with. I just got to wait three years. Um, um, oh my God. That's so funny. But, um, but with my core following is like, I, there's so many people who really like my self-development stuff. People, I'm way better at helping people than I am at being funny. And that bothered me for <laughs> so long where it was just like there was like a... I, I, just so the listeners aware, Bill has fans who literally flew out to Scotland to watch him do comedy from his Cora. Yeah. And, and like it's 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 crazy. And like I'm able to leverage so much more opportunity from this. I spent like a lot of time building my self-development yeah. kind of skills. And so to go back to that and be like, oh, let me just profit off of this. Why am I building up this kind of this like I need to only profit from comedy or Bitcoin, weirdly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's just like when I look at the Power Bible, it was like, oh, man, like this was this was just really um, it, it was it was just really it was like a spirit. I think a lot of times you need to prove to yourself something. And I think a lot of times we're, we're, we're sad because we don't undertake anything big enough. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about writing a book like that was that was a massive undertaking that's taken way longer than we've wanted it to. But then you take a look at the fact that we've done what a publishing company takes three fucking years to do in a year, in a year. Yeah. And like, honestly, it could already be done if like, you know, like other people had moved on other stuff faster. That's true. And so it's like, you know, and it, it's great. And we've gotten like amazing feedback. And it's, exa- it, it's exactly the book we wanted to write. Yeah. And I think that that is really, um, I think if, if, if there's been anything, this has been the greatest year of my life in terms of things I've done that made me proud. I've passed the bar, done all this other stuff. And um, even though like in comedy, I've kind of taken a back seat. It's like just complete things. Like there's like nothing that does more. Just free- do cool shit, man. Yeah. Just work on cool shit. Yeah. Try to do something cool. And like, don't worry if it works. Yeah, don't worry if it It's because it's not gonna. Yeah. The more projects don't work out than work out. Yeah. And like, I, I just internalize that. It doesn't mean don't do it. It well, means do it and be cool with yourself. Make it into something. Well, and also here's the thing is, is that the reason why a lot of early projects don't work out is because you want to get validation too quickly. That's uh, you. We've had a lot, a lot of talk about this is a bigger idea than we have time to explore in the yeah. remaining time of this podcast. But I, I do want to uh, get this part. Yeah, out. go ahead. Is that is that there is a level of polish that something takes to be profitable that a lot of times we don't even have an awareness of because we get so wrapped up in like, oh, the fact that we did it is such a surprise. Yeah. But um, when we, you and I have done enough projects to just like kind of have, and honestly, you just being like, 
like it needs more it needs to be more refined or whatever like this and because there's something there's a way that you act with a finished product that once you've like deprived yourself of the validation but you know something is actually fucking amazing you act you interact with that piece of work differently than you would something that maybe you came out with just a little bit too early. Mm. You won't send it out to as many people. You won't be as bold or forthcoming to make people read it or in its value. And I think that's a really valuable thing. It's, it's got to be lean. It's got to be dangerous. It's yeah. got to be... You look at like a... This is going to sound insane to anybody listening to this podcast, but it's like you look at a fucking... I got this knife, K-Bar knife, that I bought when I was like younger, right? It's like a Marine Corps knife. There's not, there is not an ounce of fat on that knife. It is a handle... And it's a blade, and that's it. And like that, anything that you do needs to get in this position where it is just there's you can't take anything else away and have it be the same thing. Yep. If there is anything there that you can take away and and it and it's still the same thing, then take it away. Exactly. And and that's the point that I had to get. And I was serious about this with the Power Bible. Oh, I I mean, dude, we we recorded the audio book and then cut out. What probably turned out to be like 70 pages because like when the final thing, yeah. right? Because that was 50 pages off the manuscript, which is different than the the edited version of, yeah. that made it into the book. And um, yeah, and I'm with the frame control product. I shot that bitch five times. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it, like so I, I, I ended up having man. to fly out to a mansion in fucking in California because the people at RSD were like, dude, this is really good, but this is kind of shit quality, you yeah. know? And like, but like basically having that level of standard where you're like, oh, I need to keep doing this again and again, like counting on the first time just not being good enough. Yeah. And, um, and the thing that's um, kind of like, that was like a really interesting experience. I just think it, so I mean, just to draw this back to the listeners like if you're getting anything from this podcast it's like your your everything your life your yourself everything you do is going to go through a whole bunch of different levels of being in different ways and you're going to evolve and you're going to change and you're going to be in different things and it doesn't mean don't do projects but like just accept the fact that it's like man this is not going to be what it is in the end is not what it was when you started mm-hmm. and that's fine that's all part of the journey and like don't be afraid to like get into that space but also accept that it's probably not going to be what it is and don't have this notion that it has to be this exact thing and it has to happen this exact way well yeah a lot of times what happens is and i call this um uh, basically um when you consume a lot you actually have and this is the ira glass thing you have like really high taste but your vision of what you can produce does not match your talent yeah it's just your your vision and that's the the problem is that you have a vision but you have no idea how the fuck that vision got put together because you didn't understand that that vision was put together of like eight thousand dollar camera seven different audio guys yeah a fucking food bed in the back like there, there's so much that's happening to create the experience that you are looking at through your vision yeah like the ability to direct people the talent of the people involved and a lot of people make plans that don't they don't consider the resources of talent that are around them mm. or that they have access to or have the ability to pay and here's the thing sometimes you shouldn't pay the best talent because they don't give a fuck about your project yeah like, so like, <laughs> oh my god dude you dealt with that so much yeah it's just like you 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 want to just get somebody who is within your spectrum of can still give a shit. Yeah. Because like if you get the best guy and they don't give a fuck, it's the worst. It built, I, this is why we were talking about conspiracy number earlier. Yep. It's because it's like the more people you have to depend on, the more problems you're gonna have. Yep. And you and one of the things you have to understand is in in friendships and stuff like that is 
you're going to see a different side of people when you're working with them in a capacity with stakes. And so when you got to just always be aware, like, oh, you guys get along as friends, but now there's stakes. Now you have to have you have to see like, oh, do I if they're freaking out on something small. You can't go deeper. Right. And because mm-hmm. these are the things that you have to kind of do, because some people, when stakes are involved, they're just the personality is going to change. And so what you have to do is kind of figure out what is your working relationship when there's stakes involved, leveraging into that. There's all these things that kind of happen. What happens with you in these situations? What are your impulses? And it really it's a, really um, a purifying experience to create something from start to finish. And the resistance that you have are the resistance to changing yourself because you're going to have to be unlike yourself. You're going to have to be a different person when you finish it than you did when you began it. Dude, we recorded the audiobook. I had to re-record my entire goddamn section of the audiobook because I sounded <laughs> like Lenny from Mice and Men because I have dyslexia. And it's not because it, it wasn't because it wasn't passable. It was that Brendan is really good at voiceover work. So the, di- the 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 difference between Brendan and I's performance on the audiobook is it would have created an effect where people would have I have long monologues in the book where people would just not like those monologues. So I had to go through and re-record the whole thing, the whole fucking thing. And that's something that you're not going to do you're not going to consider doing if you're like, "Oh yeah, it's just going to work out." Most things don't work out for that reason. Is yeah. that that people are like, "No, I'm sure it's going to be fine." If I'm sure it's going to be fine, if you're saying that more than a couple times, you need to fucking if you want to make money off the thing, you need to redo it. Yeah, <laughs> you need to fucking re- just redo it. Yeah, it's probably gonna be all right. Yeah, <laughs> that said, every person who never made, made money, money off their yeah. shit. Yeah, uh, yeah, this has been a lot. This has been a lot. Where um, where can people follow you, Bill? I mean, um, just uh, don't just <laughs> buy, just buy just buy the goddamn join the community. Yeah, buy yeah. the master class. It'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, yeah, um, you'll be a, probably be in France by the time this comes out. Actually, most definitely. Uh, well, I'm gonna miss you, man. Hey. I'll have to go over there and visit. And um, everybody should obviously follow the lazy philosopher. And if you've listened to me on earlier versions of Brendan's podcast, or if you record the Trump episode below, you can <laughs> see how much um, my voice has changed. And then if you want to purchase my voice course. <laughs> <laughs> you got the voice course, yeah. you got the discipline course, yeah. you got the master class. Dude, I'm, I'm fucking prop. I'm pimping this ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh man, Bill. That's th- the thing about comedy. You try to pimp yourself, and nobody wants it. <laughs> <laughs> Ever try to pimp your ass? It's for so free sad. It's so nothing? sad too because you're the iceberg slim of your own brain. Yeah. Oh so my you're God. just like I'm beating myself with a hanger every night. Oh my. Why God. ain't you funny, you bitch? The hundred. <laughs> how many times? Man, just trying to get funny, like you know, this is this is the weird thing. Is it's like I think it's harder to be funny on stage if you're funny in real life. I think I've shared this thought on the podcast before. Yeah, but um, yeah, man, I think you're really funny in both places. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, well, Bill, it's been great, man. Uh, we'll have you back on here when you when you get kicked out of France. Yeah, right. <laughs> like Brexit. Like they're like, yeah, dude, your British passport actually Boris Johnson drafted even a worse deal. Oh God, that guy. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, I'll link everything in the show notes. It's been a long-ass episode, but uh, meanwhile, the madness continues. Peace. Peace. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Madness Continues podcast. Once again, this is Brendan Lemon. If you liked what you listened to, please take a minute to like, to subscribe, to give us a rating. It really does mean a difference. I say us like there's more than one person doing this. Uh, it's just me, everybody. So every little bit of support you can lend would be really appreciated by me. If you want to share this podcast, it would really, really, really mean a lot to me. I hope you come back. I hope you listen and check out the other podcast I produce, Funny Planet, where we talk to different comedians from all over the world about what they're doing and how they are funny in their own cultures. You can learn a thing or two and you'll have a laugh too. Anyway, take care. Take it easy. We'll see you here next time.